I am Consciously Curious, a podcast for those that are searching for a career or cultivating meaning within their own space. We've had anesthesia providers to barbers, dog behaviors to airline pilots, white collar to blue collar, entrepreneurs to passion projects. Life's too short to not produce meaningful work. Join me, Victor Chan, as we deep dive within various industries. I'd love to hear your feedback, so feel free to leave a comment. I hope you find some value within these conversations, but more importantly, I hope it sparks a meaning within your own space. In this episode, Jason returns to share a side of life outside of the restaurant industry. He shares where he developed his mantra of fighting dirty. From being bullied as a child to not taking shit from cancer, Jason never backed down. He also shares his sentiments on the current landscape of the hospitality industry. For those of you listening all the way through, pay attention to how many times Jason says, best friend. Cheers to surrounding yourself with love and positivity. DJ, sexy voice. Yeah. Thanks, um, for, tur- thanks for turning into night moves. <laughs> <laughs> if Jason had a show... Um, so yeah no need for a huge intro um this is the return this is like i think you're the second guest to come back oh the return i'm honored welcome seriously and sincerely i'm i'm honored i was excited to be to come back and i think we did um, last summer it was yeah it was a lot almost a a much better person than i was more tan stop (laughs) (laughs) so what have you been you've been up to these days i've i've been had the pleasure of bumping into you a couple times at time out but i'm sure you're running around yeah, I was, I was keeping myself very, very busy, mm-hmm. uh, as most people in the restaurant business are forced to do. Um, you know, I'm on technically my first day one of this quarantine. Right. Uh, we, I closed up the shop, uh, my stall at the timeout uh, market right. on Sunday at 3 okay. p.m., uh, and then today spent the day cleaning everything, uh, moving all the smallwares and everything out of there. And then uh, met with my two partners, right. uh, my investor and my business partner, and we went over an action plan and kind of talked about a lot of things, uh, you know, uh, uh, the past, present, the future, mm-hmm. uh, what was working, what wasn't working, and what we think is going to work moving forward. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, especially my partner, she's a critical thinker. Yeah. Uh, she's very uh, strategic and... You know, I'm more renegade, uh, tactile, impulsive. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know, and that's the great synergy between her and I is that uh, one's left side of the brain, one's right, one's enigmatic and very logical, and one's creative. Yeah, and then we both have a little bit of both. Right. Um, So, do you think? Do you think the plans, the strategies that you're going to implement, not just I guess you guys, because you have, you probably have a good pulse on the general the industry as a whole. Do you think what people are implementing now will have lasting effects once this martial law has lifted? You know, <clears throat> I can hope for the best like any other human being, but expect the worst. And I think that's a smart move. You know, there's a the, the, the thing I love the most about the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. but especially the hospitality uh, community in Chicago is that it's very incestuous. It's very tight-knit communal yeah um it's a band it's a brotherhood um and it's a basically a family Mm -hmm. especially if you look at the 
you look at the blueprint of what's prevalent right now out there in the restaurant world in Chicago, you know, 30 years ago, we were all in a different world. We were all behind the lines. We were all behind the scenes. We were all uh, soldiers. And now a lot right. of us are generals. And so it's created this really amazing uh, cohesion yeah. of uh, philosophy and, and soul and and real and coming from integrity, like a, a place where it's very, very genuine. And we're all really concerned about each other because right. it, whether you're the biggest group or the smallest group, um, it affects us um, severely, but especially for the little guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I only had this food hall and I'm involved in uh, the pop-up restaurant space. Mm -hmm. um, although I don't have much of an active role in that, it's mostly programming. And um, this is really, <clears throat> if you think about it, what represents restaurants to me at least and what I think and what I try to <sighs> preach or instill in the people that work with me or around me is that the main the main reason a restaurant is there is to provide pleasure. Yeah, right. You look at after every, um, you look at it after every natural uh, catastrophe, crisis, or disaster. The first thing that pops up are restaurants. Right after Katrina, uh, they put all this money into uh, placing restaurants and offering uh, restaurateurs and chefs um, incentives to oh, open to restaurants because okay. it's okay. it brings a sense of comfort. Yeah. It creates jobs. Yeah. Uh, it creates a hub for a community to build around. Right. Um, you know, one restaurant, the smallest restaurant, can hire a couple dozen people. Um, you have a bigger restaurant, you're hiring 150 people. Mm -hmm. You know, what was a problem uh, the last couple of years in Chicago is not having the resources and not having enough line cooks and staff to go around. Uh, now that's been completely obliterated. And what's going to happen? Now all those people have nowhere else to go. Yeah. You can't go work in another restaurant because your restaurant closed because all restaurants are closed. Right. Um, you know, you only have uh, a skill set and you only have uh, a passion that you've been cultivating or nurturing for the last X amount of years. So now um, how do you stay positive? Right. Uh, what are you doing emotionally and mentally? What are you doing uh, to survive? Exactly. Uh, I think people put together a, a proposal, a letter to the to the governor. Yeah, we've to, all done it, right? To ask for help. Yeah, they were all thanking the governor, and I was typical to <laughs> typical uh, for me. I I openly on social media was like, I don't think uh, uh, Pritzker. I think um, you know what he did is something that he had to do and he's obviously looking out for the best interests of uh you know the masses and the general public which is great and i i'm not contesting that but i think there was a different way to go about it it's you know there's a way to serve someone you can just throw it on the table and say hey there you go or you can say hey you know <laughs> this is what you're about to get served and you know this is what's involved and here are the ingredients and the whole nine yards i hate to use that cliche but for me i just think there's I understand the sense of urgency. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'm all about health and, and wellness and, right, and right. you know, the, the, whatever's great. Especially after better. that St. Patty's Day weekend when people are just like, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, you know, there needed to be, uh, here's the thing. I look at, <clears throat> I look at martial arts and the way I've been trained and about a lot of other things that yeah. I try to use and apply in my life. And I think that there's certain things that are inevitable. So I think absolutely 
coronavirus uh, affecting Chicago and coming to Chicago, it is inevitable. Right. So instead of all the prevention and then the general like, okay, if you've got a, a nosebleed cut off the head, which is how I feel like they dealt with this, um, I, I think you should be a critical thinker and say, okay, well, it's inevitable it's going to come here when it does come here and it is a pandemic that spread to Chicago and the Midwest. You know, what's the action plan moving forward from there? What steps do you take? Uh, what do you do? Not in retrospect, but what do you do? Like, okay, hey, we have 50 cases and seven people died. It's here yeah. in Chicago. Okay, at that point, you know, there's levels of severity and there's a pecking order and, you know, nothing ever goes as, as planned. But at least have an action plan of what to do once it was here to just openly cause panic. Uh, people yeah. are buying toilet paper because they don't know what else to do. That's the current currency. Exactly. Toilet paper. Right. Um, so there's that. I, you know, I don't have all the answers. Um, I certainly think that, you know, shit rolls downhill and cream rises to the top. And, you know, I'm not going to make any personal opinions on our government leadership mm-hmm. or any political statement. But like I said, shit rolls downhill. So you would, you would, to the top. is there, would, would there be a medium for you between just simply doing takeout orders, a to-go order, delivery orders? Yeah, I think we should make uh, Michael Muser, the partner. Mm. Uh, What's he going to do? I think we should make him mayor, <laughs> governor, or president of the United States. Because, you know, other than, <laughs> rather than, you know... Uh, having someone uh, that grew up in politics and has a background in politics or our current president has a background and experience and pedigree of failure in everything he's right. d- done. You know, you think about the restaurant business, it is literally the most unpredictable business there is. And you have to think on your feet and nothing ever goes as planned as we sp- mm-hmm. spoke of last time mm-hmm. where I was here. And so you really, you should put someone who practices martial arts. You should put someone that crushes the restaurant business and put them in charge. Right. Uh, Because you can throw a million balls at them and they're going to. They'll be able to handle it. Yeah. Well, in in addition to that, I mean, even if we, you know, decided, you know, this day, just delivery, just takeout, just to go, we think about like five steps ahead of that and the repercussions of everyone in the hospitality industry that's. What are they, you know? I'm just going to say what my personal thought is, you know, so far from where it originated till now, from a month and a half ago till now, yeah. the survivability rate is like 98.9%. Yeah. And it gravely affects the elderly. So why am I worried? Uh, is because I'm worried for my parents. My parents are elderly. Absolutely. My dad's 85. My Absolutely. mom's 77. So rather than say, okay, no and no NBA, no NHL, no MLB, no concerts, no restaurants, you come up with a well-thought process or statement to say, hey, maybe if you're over 60, you should think about staying home. And because, right. and I get it. I mean, it's like hurting cats any way you do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the easy answer no, they, is, but Trump Trump was reluctant to to speak out early on because well, of his because of about, his image. Well, that's just it. Like we need we need guidance, we need direction, we need a general manager, <laughs> right? Uh, that kind of had an action plan because yeah. he went from saying he stopped it in China <laughs> to saying it was a hoax uh, to now you know eighteen different variations of what 
uh, he originally mm -hmm. said, which mm -hmm. was that it's, you know, uh, fake news and, right. you know, produced by the liberals and the whole nine yards. But I do agree on one thing. It's, you know, it's not a fatal disease for people my age and younger. No, but it's the, um, it's the it is transmissibility. It is a thing. It's very dangerous. Right. I don't, I'm not. Uh, it's, I'm not, You're not dismissing it. I'm not dismissing it, discounting it. I'm not making a reductive statement about coronavirus in general. Just as a Chicagoan and a person that's uh, also in the health industry, and found out today that all gyms uh, quite possibly even, will even close. Condo gyms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gyms, restaurants. So they're the two things that are my livelihood, uh, my joy, my passion. Uh, my hobby, mm -hmm. they're they're my everything, which is why I wanted to come today and talk because yeah. last time we we spoke at long length about the restaurant Other business, things, yeah. which yeah. is only one side. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of great feedback from friends and oh, I'm glad just it. people on social media that follow me. I got a lot of emails and inbox messages. They're like, we want to hear about this. We want to hear about that. And, you know, I've always romanticized the idea of writing uh, some sort of journal memoir book, just like my friend Phil Foss did. And, mm -hmm. you know, I recommended that he is someone that you reach out to and okay. get on the show. And, you know, maybe we can co-host a show or I'll yeah, definitely let's, send him let's do uh, it. your email and exchange your information and math so that you guys can speak because I think it would be of uh, large value to a lot of people in our industry to hear his story and hear about his book and mm -hmm. his trials and tribulations because it affects every single one of us. At some level, right in, in the restaurant business, right, but also right. as human beings. Um, so today, I kind of wanted to, you know, talk about uh, some things that. Uh, well, basically, I wanted to come talk about you know some things that I'm very passionate about. Martial arts being the other side of the coin that we didn't really delve too much into. Yeah, um, my health. Uh, a lot of people associate me with, uh, you know, being a survivor and, and battling uh, a disease. A lot of people didn't know about it because it happened seven years ago. Right. And I always love talking about that subject. And then, you know, obviously food, because if you look at a lot of my social media, uh, it's kind of like a... It's brought many people together. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like food and wine, GQ and Playboy all mixed yeah, together right. in, in a sense. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it's been great because I've gotten a lot of feedback from people since I did the, uh, yeah, your episode oh, great. last okay. year, which is almost a year, well, almost, almost a year. Almost, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, when we were talking to each other, I kind of said, you know, yeah, I, I think the title of the episode should be like burgers, tequila, and fighting dirty because, <laughs> you know, there's other things I'm passionate about and very focused on and, well, that I love. Right, uh, right, right. And you know what? You're the sum total of your experiences and you're the sum total of who, you know, what you do. That's who you are. Yeah. And uh, as you know, because we went and enjoyed one Thanks for introducing me to Scoff. Uh, it's it's I, top yeah, three for I'm me now. This, <laughs> this is a body made by burgers. Uh, I drink a lot of tequila. I, I drink probably, you know, 15 cups of coffee a day. Uh, I think one of the only reasons I got into the restaurant business was uh, one... Uh, so I could avoid all family gatherings and holidays. <laughs> and two was unlimited coffee and caffeine. Okay. Okay. Where and then Fighting yeah. Dirty, which is... Fighting Dirty. Everybody the asks handle. me, yeah. why, why is your Instagram... Well, because I wanted to have a distinct separation or uh, uh, difference between my business page and my personal page. Okay. And there's a, you know, I guess we can start with that. 
I, I fight dirty. Fighting dirty is kind of my own form or style of martial arts. Right. Um, it's also something I kind of live by because there's a way you have to be. When you see me at, if anybody's ever seen me in one of my restaurants, I'm in a suit. They don't know I have tattoos. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A large portion of my repeat guests, regular guests, uh, guests that have followed me back from 18 years ago from my first restaurant or when I was managing restaurants, uh, they've never seen this side of me. Interesting. They only see me as the guy that is the voice on the phone right, or the, right, right. Uh, the person at the table that buys them a dessert or asks them how they're doing or you know says goodbye and thanks right. for coming in. So, you know, <clears throat> like everything else in life, uh, I, I'm really happy now because at one point I used to be sad. Uh, I'm really, really strong now uh, because at one time I used to be very weak. I'm very positive right now because I lived in a world surrounded uh, with uh, negativity. Mm. So, you know, you you kind of create yourself. You're always trying to create a better version of yourself. You're a lobster that changes its shell and is right. very vulnerable. And yeah. I've just like a lobster, I've shed many shells and... I think, you know, that's part of evolving. You yeah. have, as a, to evolve as a human being, you need stimulus. A lot of times you have to stimulate yourself. Put yourself in And create adversity. And, yeah. You know, so that you're not on a comfortable path. And right. that's another thing we talked about last time is that, you know, I felt like I was on a path that was too comfortable. Mm. So I did mm-hmm. some things to make myself uncomfortable. Some worked out. <laughs> some didn't. Being broke is very uncomfortable, but it's only temporary and it's... You know, right. uh, that's only uh, a state of mind. It's temporary. Right. You know, you're right. never poor. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> fighting dirty. Um, I got beat up every oh. day. Physically or mentally? Or uh, both? Both. So from the time I was in kindergarten, because much like people from my era, I'm going to turn 54 in three weeks. I grew up in the only neighborhood my immigrant parents could afford when they first Came here. My mom came here pregnant with me in her belly. Wow. You know, um, and so she struggled and she had to find a job where um, she could, you know, not have to speak English. So we moved. <clears throat> My mom lived uh, in 53rd uh, in Hyde Park. Oh, dope. Okay, cool. Yeah. And she got a job uh, in Monica Eng's family's. Uh, luxurious penthouse Polynesian restaurant yeah. and nightclub. Wow. And uh, that's where she learned English and learned the whole culture. And uh, the only downside of that is at the time, let's just say in 1966 uh, to 1973, which is uh, how long I lived there, uh, it wasn't the best neighborhood. Okay. It was very urban. Uh, I lived... Uh, uh, we lived in the hotel. Oh, okay. My mom had a little studio uh, hotel room with a kitchenette. Was she single at the time? Yeah. Okay. Single. Wow. Raising me. Oh, wow. Um, pregnant with me and then, then you know, then raising, raising me. You, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, turned five years old. I have to go to kindergarten. My school, Bret Hart, was across the street from the Museum of Science and Industry. Oh, so man. That's cool. As a five-year-old kid. Yeah. Going, six-year-old kid, going to kindergarten... I would walk from 53rd all the way across the street from the Museum of Science and Industry. That's really cool. So that left me very vulnerable and 
prey well, to a lot of yeah. If it was how like danger wise, how how bad was it? Uh, well, do you think about it now? Like that's crazy. You know, you look at it's all the predators beautiful now. out there. Yeah, you, you look at all the predators that were they're out there now. You know, they weren't as prevalent before because they weren't all connected and communicating with each other through mm. the internet. Uh, but anyways, aside from that, uh, there were all the kids. Uh, that went to my school. I went to a predominantly African American okay. um, school, and uh, I was preyed upon mainly because I was different. Different, okay. Uh, but at the time, it was a lot of attacks on me, not culturally, but it was uh, it was the times they they stole my shoes, my lunchbox. I I went through thirty lunchboxes. Uh, they they beat me up every day and would take money, and you know I would hide. So at at that age, did you think it was? It was a race thing, or did you find no, some some black people actually on your side? So let me tell you, let me tell you something. It was actually the opposite. It was it was absolutely not a race thing, and I'll tell you why. Because I didn't experience racism until I moved to an all white. Oh. <laughs> so they beat me up, like I said, for money, candy bars. Uh, I would hide twenty five to fifty cents somewhere on my body in my shoe, and they would always find it. They would steal my shoes. They would... Oh. <clears throat> so. One day I get beat up so bad. I'm walking down the street. I'm in the middle of third grade, and uh, four kids jump out of a gangway. They beat me up to take my pants because I was literally one of the people that had the goofiest pair of cargo pants in third grade <laughs> in 1972. <laughs> and the pockets on the side of the legs, and they stole my pants. They beat me up, oh and then God. they sprayed me with the fire extinguisher. So I come walking in the house, and I'm, I've got covered in this. I've got no pants on. Yeah. I'm covered in foam. The foam's pink because I got a bloody nose and oh, a bloody lip. No. And, and I and I'm not even crying. You know, I got beat up pretty badly, but I was like so pissed off. And I'm just like, you know, I walk in the door. And my, you know, my mom's yelps out of yelp. She's like, "Oh my god!" Right, right, get right. The fuck out of this neighborhood. Right, right. And then in the middle of third grade, you know, my parents again, uh, they've done everything for me, especially my mom. Yeah. Uh, they literally borrowed money, uh, emptied out their bank account, and they bought an Irish pub in Andersonville. Okay. So the middle of third grade, it's winter. Uh, it's like the end of January. We move. Uh, we go from 53rd South yeah. to 5300 North. That's so cool. So I literally wow. went from one polar to end the other of the city end, yeah. to the exact polar right. opposite, from 53 South well, to like 5300 yeah. North. Yeah. Bryn Mawr. Bryn, so my oh, parents, Mar, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they bought an Irish pub called... Uh, McPartland's Inn. Okay. And uh, m my parents, we went into it and all regurgitated. But uh, the story behind that is when I moved there, the first day of school, I'm uh, standing in the, uh, you had to stand in line, uh, remember, outside. And you had to walk in by class in lines. Uh-oh. It's the middle of January, <clears throat> standing in line. And uh, a kid comes up behind me and Bear hugs me and then slams me to the ground, knocks me cold out. I'm eight years old. I'm literally, I think I was dressed in a suit because my mom was a Korean mom and dressed me like an accountant for, for the first day of school. <clears throat> so she, he knocks me out. When I when I come to, he's sitting on top of me. Yeah, and he's sitting on my chest. And he, I later found out he he failed third grade like twice. Should have been in fifth grade. I'll never forget his name. His name was Nicky Adams, if you're out there. Uh, Fuck you, Nicky Adams. Oh, man. I'm gonna... <laughs> so uh, he he's sitting on top of me, and he's he's got a mood ring on. So I'm showing sure oh him. Oh, my he's God. Got, he's got a mood ring on, <laughs> and the mood ring's black. <laughs> and he's like, here, let me do this right. I'm, 
I'm Nikki Adams, you fucking chink. And he's like, I run this school. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I, I've got, I'm seeing literally like stars and you know, you've got that, that ringing in yeah, your ears. Yeah, yeah. Feeling, you know, that feeling in your nose, like when you've maybe been dunked underwater. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. I, I had that feeling from, you know, being hit on the back of the head on the ground. I said, I'm trying to gain my composure and there's literally, 30 strangers I've never met before, 30 kids all circled around. It's like right out of the movies. They're like, fight, fight, oh fight. Oh, my God. And I'm like, chink, chink, chink. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what a chink is, but it can't be good. I never even heard the word before. Wow. So on the south side, uh, uh, in reference to your statement earlier, yeah, all the African-American kids beat me up because they were hungry. They wanted my food. They wanted my money. And they didn't use, what were you going to use the money for in third grade? You're going right. to buy candy. You're going right. to, you know, the same thing I use the money for. Right. Right. Or my lunchbox. Cause my mom threw down, like my mom was a chef. I had like tomato soup and I had like, you know, Damn. salami on rice sandwiches and all Damn. this great stuff. And a lot of time Asian food. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they would, they'd make fun of me. Uh, ching chong ching and they do yeah, all this stuff yeah. Chinese, Japanese whatever. but it was never I never heard chink I never uh, was assaulted or beat up because of my race so the very first day in an all uh, white Irish Catholic predominantly uh, Anglo school on the north side of Chicago right. in 1973 I'm literally knocked out on the first day of school and I'm like okay this sucks this is horrible. This is not going to be good for me. The first, if I'm starting out here, <laughs> it's just going to go down here. No. Right? So uh, I kind of it kind of realizes, and something pops in my head. I, I have a come to Jesus moment, if you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, because a couple things ran through my head. Um, now, in retrospect, the Christmas story uh, scene where Ralphie is always accosted by the bully. No. And gets jumped in the snow. Right. And, you know. Right, right. I kind of snapped. Uh, for the, I was always this very submissive, scared, lived in fear every day because I knew the minute I walked out the door, uh, either my house or the school, that I was probably going to, the probability and the chances of me getting yeah. beat up were really high. Yeah. So I said, okay, I've got to make a stand. Uh, I'm sick of this shit. Wh who, where did you, like, who motivated you or inspired you to c come to that realization? Great, great question. So my mom had always told me, like, fight back. Don't be nice to everyone, but don't take any shit from anyone. Oh. You tell that to that's, an eight-year-old kid, that's, yeah, sure, ma. There's three kids standing in front of me beating the shit out of me. Yeah. I'm going to try to fight back, sure. So it's funny because it wasn't fear. It was, uh, I guess it was that Joaquin Phoenix Joker moment when I just had this freedom, I snapped. Oh, okay. I said, that's it. I can't take this anymore. What I couldn't take was the ridiculing. What I couldn't take was the 30 people I didn't even fucking know yet, uh, you know, chanting for my, my demise and, you know, wanting this fifth grader to beat the shit out of me. Yeah. So I kind of, uh, I went apeshit. I lost my mind and I went blind. I said, fuck it. There's not three of them. Right. Uh, they're calling me this name that I don't even know what it is and everybody's laughing and making fun of me mm -hmm. and it something it lit a fire in my ass so my fear immediately turned into anger mm. so that anger is a funny thing because fear can burn you like fire but so 
can anger, right? Mm-hmm. Your mind is a is a two headed monster, right? Like right. it can serve a great purpose, but it can also eat you up inside. And it had been eating me up inside, and was my own worst enemy for the longest time. Okay, and then it turned. And the next thing I know, the teacher's running out, and she's literally kicking me, probably four feet and off. Because you were doing that much damage. And I, and I, I'm sitting there on the ground. And I look, and I realize those kids aren't chanting anymore. And she looks down, and it's just, it. You have to understand, it's January in Chicago, and back then it was always cold and lots of snow. <clears throat> there was a body, and it looked like a pizza at the top of the body, and then there was like the <gasps> blood spatter. And, so I had literally like gone nuts, and I was like speaking in tongues, like what the fuck is this? Fuck this? To Nikki? Yeah. Oh. And so I, you know, beat no this kid shit. up, and he's not moving, and the teacher's horrified, and everybody, you know, everybody just kind of froze yeah. because they saw the actual snapshot of what was going on at the time. And then uh, I got sent to the principal's office. I was a problem kid on the first day of school. And then I was... Wait, but I thought this, this was... Was that the first day? This all, this all happened the was first the first day. day. This was all so on the first day. So you snapped on the first day. I snapped on the first day. Okay. So I'm sitting wow. in the principal's office and the principal's like poking me in the chest. And he's like, I don't know if this is, you know... What you th- you think this school is like the school on the south? So then I'm the crazy. Come on, I'm the crazy kid from the south side of Chicago. They don't know that Nikki Adams is a problem. If you got held oh, back sure two did. years, I'm sure they did. Right. But at the time, at that time in 1973, they're and gonna, they're going to blame someone who looks different. I don't know. I can't. You know, I thought about that moment a lot. Right. But it's one of the defining moments that made me who. Or, or not just look different, but someone who is an outsider yeah. coming into the new neighborhood. You know? yeah. yeah, and I'll I'll tell you what that set up a whole and perpetuated a whole wretchedness within myself that I carried through until uh, my mid thirties mm. uh, because of the business I went into. I became a bouncer. Mm. I ran security. I was doing all, and that's why you know this whole pedigree started there. So from literally that day forward, I was fighting everybody. Then everybody wanted to challenge me. Everybody was like, oh, this is a kid from the South Side that beat up the guy that's, you know, two years older than him. Yeah, that was your reputation. And then that was my reputation. And then, you know, I I, I contributed to it wholeheartedly because I would rather be seen as uh, a kid that's nuts and angry and f- a good fighter, and even though that was my first fight, than the scared little guy that's always getting beat up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everything's stolen from him, mm-hmm. and is mainly my humility. Yeah, as a person, right. as a kid. Right. So uh, I'll never forget the weirdest thing happened. Uh, you know, like most things in life, um, my two Korean cousins came here from Korea, mm-hmm. South Korea. They're on their way to Ohio, where their father had always set up and was working in a job. But they stopped in Chicago for three months. They're going to live here with me and my family until they moved to oh, Ohio. Cool. The greatest thing about that was that one was in eighth grade, one was in fifth grade, and they both had learned uh, Hapkido and Taekwondo oh, and oh, wrestling in wow. high school, in grade school. Yeah. Uh, because rather, unlike the American school system, instead of dodgeball and... <laughs> that's what they got over there? <laughs> they would teach oh, them Taekwondo. Amazing. It's a oh national sport, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So my cousins both taught me three things. And they said, this is all you need to know. This is all we're going to teach you. And, you know, they barely spoke English. So my mom would translate because she told him, hey, talk to your cousin because he keeps getting in the fights at school. 
And so my cousins showed me three things. And to this day, the three things, I, it's, it's fighting dirty. I've studied um, Hapkido, uh, Kung Fu, uh, the last 20-some years, Chidokan, which is a hybrid of three martial arts. Um, aside from that, being in all the street fights that I've been in since I was eight years old, and then the three to 400 altercations I was in, right. you can't count those because people are always drunk, so that isn't a fair fight. Hmm. Right? Um, I've gotten vast experience in my 53 years of what it means to stand across from another human being, mm -hmm. and that human being want to hurt you in mm -hmm. some way. And then aside from that, just, you know, growing up in the city mm -hmm. uh, before third grade uh, as a child and then after third grade as a young, uh, a youngster, a teenager, and then a young adult. And then the things I did after that, like making the decision to be a, a bouncer mm -hmm. and, a, you know, at the time it's not, it's not, it's a, it's a job position or a role that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there's security oh. now or security staff. Sure. It's usually someone you outsource because of insurance. Mm. But back then, you know, the, the nightclubs in the eighties and nineties, I had uh, at one place, I had 40 bouncers working for me. Holy shit. Yeah. And I ran security at three or four of the biggest, most well-known nightclubs in Chicago. Okay. A lot of times I did small bars. I did consulting. People would have, rave parties and loft parties and then me and my guys would moonlight and wow. do that and so uh getting back to you know that is the genesis of uh wh what created i fight dirty yeah okay um it's cool but then as an adult what i realized is that in martial arts and in life um you can try to be a nice person i'm in hospitality i treat everybody right uh, extremely well it's my nature Right, a lot of people. That's that's pray. the Jason we know now. Yeah. Right. At at what point? Um, I think it, it magnifies the fact that I <clears throat> grew up and was so part of who I am of always defending myself or someone else because I would I never start a fight. I've never ever in my entire life started a fight. Right. Uh, I always was taught to try to end them. Um, or neutralize them. Mm -hmm. um, later in life, the last 15 years of my life, I've only gotten into maybe two or three altercations and I do everything. But you, you also have to know that, let's just say this, in the last 10 years of my life, I've had maybe 50 situations where people would purposely try to start a fight with me or selectively out of a whole room of people, maybe a concert, what? look right at me and be like, you know, because when you're passive... They think you're easy target? When you target? put on this, I'm a very positive, happy person. I'm smart. I choose my battles. I don't go to large, I don't go to any venues where there's large groups of people, of drunk, intoxicated people. Uh, I stay away from street fairs. I stay away because for me, that's just not me. I'm also the quirkiest human being you'll ever meet because <laughs> I am very, very social uh, but intentionally, by trade. Yeah. But when I'm not, at work, I'm a very private, introverted person. I like being alone. I like being at home. I like my privacy. Mm. I like to go to places that aren't busy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because my lifestyle has always been one that, you know, put me in a scenario where I was always in a very vibrant, a lot of sounds, noises, smells, right, right. people, 
when you're in that when you're in that business for a living, the last thing you it's want exhausting is to all be on, yeah, and yeah. to be part of a collective when you're not uh, when you don't have to. I like I want to just relax with yeah. myself or with someone that's important to me. And, right. Um. And so, who was it? Were, were your cousins that opened your eyes to traditional martial arts? To, to give you yeah, some direction of they just also, to like hone in and harness your passion or anger towards that? They taught me reality fighting. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm moving towards now in my future is not opening up a dojo per se, but opening up a gym mm. or a school, call it, where uh, <clears throat> you can definitely uh, you can definitely come to my dojo and learn traditional martial arts, mm-hmm. which I was taught. Uh, Korean, Japanese, and Chinese martial arts, mm-hmm. right? As well as Western. Certainly teach you that. But what I would like to do is, A, first and foremost, do what I do now and currently for the last six years, which is really one-on-one mm. because everybody's different. And maybe you want to learn boxing. Maybe you want to learn real traditional karate or maybe you want to learn kickboxing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it depends. And a lot of people don't want to be in a class. They don't feel socially comfortable. Right, right. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Uh, But what I really want to champion and what I really want to focus on is doing a three to five day seminar of how to fight in the street. And what I mean by that is, is that what I've learned and and most of all myself is that uh, I could teach you uh, karate for five years. Uh, someone else could go take jujitsu at a Gracie school for five years. Another person could take boxing for five years. And then you could get a black belt. Uh, the Gracie person could get a brown belt. The boxer that goes takes boxing classes for five years and then does the golden gloves and wins mm-hmm. um, gets a trophy. But then they walk into uh, the street of Chicago at two in the morning yeah. today. Yeah. Do you have a false sense of security because I'm a boxer and won a trophy or I have a black belt? Right. You do. It's not a false sense of security. It's a sense of confidence and ability to know that you have a skill set to defend yourself. But people in the street, uh, when they attack you, uh, they're either stupid, high, or crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Usually stupid. Stupid's a big common denominator in this world right now. And so... What happens is, is that, you know, do you have the training to know that, well, at two in the morning, anybody approaches you isn't going to approach you for a good reason. Mm. You know, they'll walk up to you with a plastic bag in their hand and they ask you what time it is. Now, a normal hum- human being, how do you assess that? Well, hey, it's two in the morning. What's in the plastic bag? And why is he asking me what time it is? It's two in the morning. So he's going to hit you with the bag. There's something in the bag he's going to hit you over the head with. And he's asking the times so you'll get close. And he's also at, he's also simulating if you're intoxicated or how stupid you are and how easy of a prey you are that you're gullible enough to like let someone walk up to you at two in the morning mm-hmm. and ask you what time it is. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the techniques, like everything that I've been taught, you know, one of the greatest things about Shidokan and, and um, the people that have currently taught me and gotten me to where I'm at um, in Shidokan uh, mainly my Shihan, Eddie Yoshimura. Um, they do it in the military. And I utilize it in every aspect of my life, especially in the restaurant business, because no matter how much you train a student or an employee, uh, they never rise up to 
everything that you showed them and taught them, mm. they settle down and into what they know. Right, 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 right. So my cousins, it's amazing to me because my cousins, 45 years, taught me the most valuable lesson about fighting. They told me three basics, and it's what I've used in everything I've ever done on the street, in the dojo or in the gym or in a class or with a student. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's polar. It's the antithesis of what I do. In the street, right. it, there's no martial arts. No, it's there's no goes. Uh, technique. Yeah. So the art of fighting dirty is literally uh i'm i'm not trying to be sexist in any way or stereotype or gender uh be gender specific but and it's not meant to be uh reductive or diminutive sure. to fight like a girl pull hair and and that's what i teach in uh sexual assault prevention like yes absolutely fight like a girl which was the moniker that was attached to it for the longest time which is pulling hair biting scratching the eyes, leaving marks on the body. Absolutely. Because mm. in this day and age, um, it you can pretty much bet dollar to donuts that anybody that's approaching you on the street is trying to hurt you, maybe kidnap you, maybe rape you. Uh, maybe just because uh, we live in a culture now, they want to put it on social media that they knocked you out. Mm. It's, it's a fucked up place. Yeah. And so you have to... And again, you know, I'm Buddhist by nature too. Mm. So is it, am I, am I compromising my own belief system yeah, by looking the other way or turning the other cheek or neutralizer? Hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to intentionally hurt anyone, but I'm going to protect myself. I want to protect my loved ones. I want to show people that I care about how to protect people. I want to, and just like the restaurant business, I want to nurture strangers. I want to teach people, mm -hmm. um, women, uh, elderly, because those are the two biggest targets. Right now, right. The, the number one target is elder, elderly for street crime, and number two is women. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other um, situations that you find people being susceptible to like one for example i still follow that ukrainian village facebook page and yeah a common one is the where people would bump your car from behind yeah have you get out their buddies come in and they drive off with your car people prey on um reactions right mm. so the, what's your natural reaction we live in a culture today where the first thing, road rage it's already prevalent the minute you get in your car even i'm guilty of that it, right. we're all human beings right. so you know, you're already in a, put yourself in a scenario or an environment, which is your own car, because that's your comfort level. Like everybody loves their car. Yeah. They have something, they have their music, they have their uh, feathers hanging it's from theirs, their, right, it's right. your comfort zone, right? Right. right. And uh, it's the one place you can actually uh, not audit yourself you can pick your nose you yeah, yeah pull the underwear out of your butt <laughs> yeah, yeah you yeah. can rearrange the troops you can right, swear right. you can oh that guy's a fucking jag off right uh it's the one place where it's kind of your own personal sure cubicle yeah right yeah so um yeah there everybody that's on the street is fighting dirty they're going to try to sucker punch you. They're going to try to bump you because they know the reaction is you're going to hop out. And the thing about the street now that a lot of people don't teach you and no one really realizes is that there's always uh, a team member. There's always someone else. There's always a, a backup. In other words, if there's one person that approaches you on the street, there's usually two, three other people somewhere on oh, the fringe. Yep. You know, yep. it wasn't in the news and I didn't, I purposefully, uh, 
you know, I, I, I got a lot of attention for neutralizing a situation at my restaurant mm-hmm. and it was all over the news and mm-hmm. the Daily Mail and Huffington Post. Uh, last summer, at the end of the summer, I was with someone on Michigan Avenue at the Starbucks next to the Intercontinental mm-hmm. Hotel and a guy sat next to the uh, employee that I was with. Mm-hmm. We're having coffee, talking about, you know, uh, next week's uh, operations. And the guy stole her wallet out of her purse and I caught him and started punching him in the head. Right then and there. And then I looked, I as soon as I started punching him and knew that he was neutralized, I looked to my left and I saw the two guys that were standing at the bus stop watching they were, they his back. With, they, with walked, him. they both split and walked away. Oh, of course. And so you have to understand that, you know, uh, predators hunt in packs. packs. Yeah. They yeah. pick out the... What's the most vulnerable? The person that's not paying attention. The person that's not aware of their situation, their surroundings, and is oblivious. The ones there on this, yeah. Uh, the ones that their head are down. Well, or yeah. Not what, aware what would of their you say? What if what if someone came up to you um, while that was happening and they had a gun? So a gun. Is, so that that changes things. Right? It it changes everything. Okay. I've been in altercations where there's been a knife and a gun, and there's not really much you can do mm-hmm. you give them the money it's your life so right, i'm not going right. to risk getting shot in the face or uh getting stabbed um the last two times that i had a knife pulled on me in a box cutter i took my belt off and oh. i towel whipped him in the face with my belt buckle Holy shit. like like, <laughs> like jason Bourne. Oh. uh but here's the thing uh when it comes to a gun there's nothing you can do unless they tell you to get in the trunk of your car Unless they tell you to get in the car or the van or uh, tell you to, uh, they're going to take you somewhere. Yeah. Because then you're you're royally fucked. You're fucked if someone pulls a gun on you. Uh, but if someone wants to take you somewhere, um, you it's worth a fight because then you're most certainly going to be in a a place that's yeah. hopeless. Last last fall, um, a girl on campus was followed off the blue line at Halstead. And then this guy was catcalling her, and she was she was, she was like not having any of it. But he followed her all the way to the parking garage at UIC, killed her, put her in her car, and raped her. Yeah, yeah. So criminals are cowards. That's why they say, uh, "Don't scream, and I won't hurt you." Or oh, they yeah. say, "Come over here in the alley, and I won't hurt you," because they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to be exposed for what they are, which is. A coward. Um, so you have to yeah. meet, your, you know, you have to dress, you have to choose your fights. If someone pulls a gun on you, absolutely take everything I got. It's not worth my life. Mm-hmm. Your life is worth everything if they're trying to get you to a place where they can take it away from you. Yeah. So that's kind of an assessment you have to do yourself. What What else has training and martial arts done for you aside from the practicality? of it has it done it i mean maybe a stress reliever but is there anything anything more yeah to it? it's my life and I'll, i'm gonna touch on the the main parts yeah now in the last seven years this is the second time i'm battling something that begins with the word c the last one was cancer this one's corona you know physical health uh What's more important is mental health and the funniest thing is is the only the the instrument to get mental and emotional health is physical right you have to do the physical to attain 
the centering, the self-confidence, the self-discipline, the self-control, the self-esteem, that all comes through all this vigorous, crazy, physical... Um, Almost primal. Yeah. You civilize your soul by making your body savage. And that's something that martial arts is definitely about. Um, so aside from that, secondly, you know, endorphins, dopamine, yeah. serotonin, all the natural mood enhancers that you release when you really exert yourself. And, you know, there's something about martial arts that I love, and it's an old samurai quote that, you know, the ultimate warrior is the one that only truly challenges themselves, their own fears, their own limitations. Yeah. Physically, mentally, emotionally. We're always just battling ourselves. When when I, you know, when I struggled with my health issue, uh, I wasn't battling the disease or the treatment. The treatment was worse. I was battling myself on a minute-to-minute, second-to-second basis to stay positive on a cellular level, mm-hmm. not just in my head, say, oh, I'm going to stay positive and be happy and be strong. I'm... You know, talking to a couple close friends that have been diagnosed with uh, cancer now. Oh, okay. And, you know, I just really try to stress, and it doesn't, hey, I don't, I'm not preaching uh, to be a medical wonder or a human being that knows more than anybody else. You know, I, I think I'm very blessed, and I had a lot of variables in my life that I think attributed to my uh, successful recovery. Mm-hmm. I did everything. You know, I did everything uh, and more um, than an average uh, cancer patient um, because I had a lot of friends who passed away from cancer and dealt with cancer before I actually uh, was diagnosed. But with was cancer. it was it hard for you to ask for help initially? It was so, and this is what I mean. You know, I am very active on social media. Yeah. Before cancer, not at all. Oh. I didn't want anybody to know I had cancer. Oh. I didn't want. Uh, you know, I was the sensei. I was the rock for all my friends. I was the employer. Did, for you all didn't my want employees. to see weak, show weakness. I didn't. Yeah, and in a or way, vulnerability. It's, uh, I guess. Yeah, major vulnerability. Right. Major, like, put your heart out there for everyone to see it. Yeah. And you know, thanks, to the universe, God, Buddha, Allah, whoever it is. Um, my friends are like, "Fuck you." Uh, we're gonna start a GoFundMe. Page. How did they find we're out? Gonna, um, <clears throat> so here's the story. When I was, uh, diagnosed with cancer, I went through a, a whole eight, nine month period before I, uh, cause I had to go to Cook County, That's I had to insane. go to Stroger, which was, uh, here's what here, I'm going to use an analogy. Uh, dealing with Stroger Cook County was like me being in a knife fight and I had a dildo made out of <laughs> fucking Swiss cheese jello <laughs> and uh <laughs> it was it was the worst that was one of the so that was the appetizer for my whole uh experience experience with cancer and it sucked because I literally went to Stroger <laughs> at 7:30 in the morning wait after the first wait. after the first time I went to Stroger I had a routine I would have a my iPad, a book, headphones, and I would pack two meals. Mm. And I would bring three bottles of water because I would literally get there at 7.30. The clinic opened at 8 where I was supposed to get my uh, ultrasound uh, biopsy for okay. the lump that was in my throat. Okay. And uh, 
I went, uh, here's the thing. The ultrasound machine was only available every other Thursday. So there were days where you waited so and you didn't... You every other even... Thursday, I would go there at 7.30. The, the clinic would open at 8. And by 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night, I'd still be waiting there for a whole 12 hours just so they could stick a, you know, a, a needle in my neck and pull out um, cells from... A biopsy, the yeah, yeah. Because the first time I went, it took two months for me to finally see a doctor. And they said, oh, put hot compresses on your... On the lump, we we did a blood a white blood uh, cell test. You, you have a lot of like oh. blood cells. You're fine. Yeah, uh, we did a scan. There's no uh, we don't see a mass or anything. It's probably uh, it'll probably it's a swollen lymph node. Yeah. So put hot compresses on it. Right. Wow. So I did that, and uh, they said do it for three days. It kept getting bigger after oh, a week. Okay. So I kept doing it for a week, and then I was like, I'm a man, like most men. I'm Especially at the time when I was cutting it out yourself. No, I was like, I'll just get an extra hour sleep. Maybe I'll put some Robitussin or Vicks on it. I was like, I'll get an extra hour sleep or stop eating cake, whatever. (laughs) And uh, I was training one of my clients who was a doctor. Yeah. And you know, her name is Lauren Gerber. I love her. She's uh, my therapist and a dear friend, and I love her dearly because she she literally set this whole thing off. I was holding pads, and I went to. Talked to someone and she said, hey, what's that on your neck? Oh. And I said, it's a swollen lymph node. I, I spar every day, so I got punched right. in the neck or it's a swollen sweat gland. I go, right. I don't know. It's fine. She's like, did you go to the doctor? I'm like, yeah, my, my boss at work said you should go check that out. And he'd let me go for the day. And I went every uh, day and I couldn't get in. And when I finally did, they said it's a swollen lymph node. Just put hot compresses on it. And then she touched it. She goes, that's, that's not- what it's called encapsulated. She's like, imagine a peanut with a shell around yeah. it. It's not good. You definitely have to go get that okay. checked out. So then I went, and for the next six months, uh, it was just waiting. In the you had the shitty experience of waiting. Horrible. Wow. It was the worst. And when I finally found out, uh, I, the minute uh, they told me what the diagnosis was, they so I'm sitting there, and the doctor, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Karen Schwartz, said, you have uh, squamous cell carcinoma. It's cancer. Uh, so we're gonna have to do a neck dissection. Like that? Yeah, we're gonna have to uh, like just set it with the straight. Yeah. Like oh shit. Well, yeah, they're very. You know, doctors are very. Yeah, yeah. Not the best. Something. So, not bedside, some, Not all bedside manner, but I think she was trying to show me the severity, or just be as non emotional as she could, so yeah. it wouldn't trigger my emotions. Because sure. I was already at a level of like I want to stab everyone in the face with a fork in this hospital because I've had to wait six months right. to get to this point. Right. I'm not even going to go into the, you know, uh, it, after six months, it came back inconclusive. I'm like, well, what does that mean? They're like, we have to get a bigger gauge and do it again. I don't know if you've ever had an, an eel Biopsy? stuck in your neck. No. Yeah, it's the worst feeling in the world. And I have a really high pain threshold. Okay. So then I had to go back and I waited three more months and then to wait for the results was another month. And I'm like, you know what? I, I literally was enraged. I lost my temper. I was in the waiting room and I literally walked up to the nurse. And I said, here's my email. Just tell them to fucking email me the results. I've been here for nine months waiting for you guys. And it's so funny. I had never seen her in the nine months that I've been in the, at Stroger. And I, and I thought it was a sign. Like maybe some sort of a Korean nurse came out who was... She was a harmony. She was probably 70 years old. She's obviously wow. like a nurse's aide. Yeah. She came back. She came out 
and she had this beautiful <laughs> wrinkled face that was full of color and she said you have to stay the doctor wants to see you last and I knew right then oh, there's probably wow. not going to be good news and then she told me and then she said okay we, we got to take out all your lymph nodes we're going to do a dissection we're going to cut out everything tomorrow morning I, I, I said what and they're like yeah we're going to cut out your lymph nodes and uh, we're going to take them all out tomorrow I said okay She's like, don't eat anything. She gave me a piece of paper. Don't eat anything after midnight. Only fluids up until then. This, that, the other thing. Come back at five in the morning. I was there at five in the morning. I waited eight hours. And they said, come back on Monday. Oh, my God. Because we don't have enough operating rooms. I'm like, okay. So that whole weekend was not a good weekend. I didn't tell my girlfriend. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell any of my friends. But you needed this procedure. I didn't know much about cancer. I assumed, literally, I assumed if they cut out the, my lymph nodes, be, then cancer's gone. And no one would ever know. And yeah. no one would ever know. Oh. I didn't go on the internet uh, because I, you know, you can have uh, a fungus on your thumbnail. If you go on the internet, it's like, oh my God, I got her hepatitis C or whatever. I got the creeping funk. So uh, I, Monday, that weekend was a hard weekend. I went in on Monday at 5 a.m. And when I woke up, I was in uh, the hallway of Stroger. Uh, I, I came to and I immediately vomited and it hurt like hell. And there was just searing pain. Like just this whole area was searing pain. Oh. Right. And so they put me in a room an hour later and I'm next to, uh, Ulysses, a pimp, <laughs> uh, from the South side of Chicago. Oh, cool. And, uh, the first thing I do when I wake up, he's like, hey, man, you got a cigarette? And I literally look at him, I go, shut the fuck up and leave me alone. Oh. I was not in good mood. And, you know, he didn't know what was going on, but right, I wasn't right, right, having right. it. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I thought this is just so asinine that I just had my throat cut open. And he sees it. You know, I had I had uh, 21 staples. In my, it looked like someone cut off my head. Oh, wow. And he's asking me for a cigarette. Yeah. And then it was a nightmare from then on he had hookers come visit him and for real yeah uh <laughs> gotta keep uh, the business he, open <laughs> he he literally had them bring his pit bulls and they no wanted way. to bring him yeah and the, like, the nurses made him keep him in the car like this it was it was like a county was a zoo was, before i huh? wanted to kill this guy uh so you know long story short uh what about getting your teeth did you get your you didn't like did they tell you that you needed your teeth pulled? So this is a story. I was in the hospital for like two, three days, and then they released me. And when they released me, um, it was, I'll never forget, because I got diagnosed with cancer on October 18th, my mom's birthday. Okay. And the reason I was so pissed off and upset that day, I was like just, because I had waited there for so long, and I was supposed to go meet my mom and dad for my mom's birthday. Right. I literally, when they, they, so they tell me I have squamous cell carcinoma. They tell me I have cancer, and then I have to get the... And then I go rush off to dinner with my parents. And then I'm sitting there and I'm putting on a happy face and don't want wow. my parents to feel the projection of the news that I just got in any way whatsoever. Then, you know, Monday comes around. I have this surgery. They let me out of the hospital on Wednesday. Um, and I'll f never forget that was like about the 22nd or 23rd by now. And <clears throat> I put together a bucket list. I had a bucket list, but it was one of those bucket lists you put together because you watched the movie Bucket List, <laughs> right? And you put it in a drawer somewhere, and it was like two things. Like, I want to 
uh, go on a date with Salma Hayek. You know, unrealistic <laughs> shit. And, uh, you know, I want to be president, first Asian president of the United States, whatever. And I started to really just be real serious and think about, okay, and it, <clears throat> at the top of the list was I want to, uh, I want to eat at every two and three star sushi restaurant in Japan, in mm. Korea. I want to go to Korea because I've never been there. I'm Korean. I never met my uh, biological father. And so why not kill like two or three stones, birds with one stone? So <clears throat> it's October 22nd. I literally scheduled everything. I was told by a very close friend, Jeremiah Johnson, who's a very well-known architect, mm. restaurant architect in Chicago. He battled and successfully survived uh, testicle uh, colon and stomach cancer. Holy shit. And the day that um, when I was told I had cancer, he said, Jace, sell everything, borrow all the money you can borrow, find out whoever it is that is the number one doctor uh, for throat cancer. Um, if he's in Timbuktu, go to Timbuktu. Uh, beg, borrow, and steal money. Uh, do whatever you can. This is your life. Uh, call Ironman's Angels. Matter of fact, he's like, I'm going to come pick you up and take you there. So literally walking what, what out of- What was that organization called? It's called Ironman's Angels, which is a- How do you spell that? I-M-E-R-M-A-N. Oh, I'm Remen. Okay, I'm Remen. Angels. Ironman's Angels. It's Johnny Ironman who also suffered from testicular cancer and survived it. Started this one-on-one cancer support group that matches you up with someone within the same age range as you uh, that had the same type of cancer in the same stage mm. who survived it. So you now have a lifeline. You also, yeah. you kind of have like a, like a buddy, a support, yeah, an advocate that you can reach out to because you know, the fear of the unknown, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what chemo is going to be like, you don't know what radiation is going to be like, you don't know what anything is going to be like dealing with a disease like this. So, or the treatment. So they partnering up with someone so that you can actually look someone in the eye or talk to them on my phone or email them whenever mm. you want. And they survived what you had. Yeah. So it's it's, it's crucial. Yeah. It's it's yeah, and so <clears throat> I'm lucky and blessed enough now to be a mentor angel. So I'm I'm oh. uh, I'm a mentor angel okay. with Ironman's Angels. So that anybody that had stage four squamous cell carcinoma or throat cancer yeah. um, that wasn't originated squamous cell carcinoma is originated from smoking. I was a very heavy oh. smoker. It's not the HPV um, okay. kind, which is prevalent right now. Oh okay. Um. So uh, I made out my list. I, I booked my trip, and I was thinking, okay, well, I'll book it out you know, as far in advance as I can, but I, I want to try to go as soon as I can because I don't know what's going to happen. So the happy medium was November 6th. Okay. The very next day after I booked my trip, the doctor calls me and says, okay, well, you know, we, we, we took out the, your lymph nodes. We also took out your tonsil. Um. We want to biopsy everything, send it to the lab. That's going to take a couple of weeks. Oh, my God. And we want you to come back in on November 5th for a scan. And we're going to do a full scan, PT scan of everything um, to see if it's metastasized, if it's, you know, if it's in any other areas because the natural first progression is to travel up to your brain right. or to travel down into your lungs. Okay. So I said, well, November 5th, I go, I just booked a trip, a food trip for a month, five weeks, actually. I want to go to Japan and Korea. And I want to eat my face off and eat sushi. And I said, great, do that. If it's November 6th, your appointment's November 5th. And by the time you come back, you'll have the results. 
like, and, you know, just be very careful because, you know, I still had this mm. huge incision on my neck. So I went, I landed in Korea. My uncle picked me up. Um, I, there's a great story that I want to write about, um, about meeting my biological father oh, on this trip. Yeah, yeah. But I landed in Korea, stayed at my uncle's house. Uh, I had an interpreter. Uh, and then we traveled to Japan. And I was in Japan for two and a half weeks, and I ate at every amazing. I ate at Jiro Mitsutani. I ate at. Uh, uh, I ate everywhere, and then I uh, flew back to Korea. But I went to Cheju Island. I went to Pusan, Incheon, places my parents grew up in. Okay, uh, my biological father and my my mother. Uh, and then two, three days before I was supposed to head back to the states, I went back to my uncle's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and stayed with him and bonded with him and talked about my biological father. And then I came back uh, the day before Thanksgiving. Wow. And uh, I had Thanksgiving, I, you know, I slept all day and then I had Thanksgiving dinner with my mom and my father. And then the day after Thanksgiving, I had, you know, as you can imagine, thousands of emails and f- 400 text messages and 100 uh, voice messages and uh, there were a lot of them for the hospital. And so I I uh, went to the hospital the day after uh, Thanksgiving and then the doctor, the head of uh, the head of oncology at Strozier said, yeah, you have stage four. It's stage four. Ooh. And uh, we have a very aggressive radiation treatment and we're going to give you the strongest chemo uh, the platinum-based chemo, it's it's going to take six hours. Every time you get chemo, it's a huge, literally, it was a bag that was like six and a half feet long. And I, I'm sitting there processing all this. Well, not really processing this. I'm like, uh, I'm kind of numb, as you can imagine. I'm just trying to think what am I, you know, it's like a, when you know you're going to have to fight, you're, yeah. if I try not to react, which is what right. I've been teaching myself my whole life is not to react, Right. And then he says, okay, now I want you to go in the basement. Here's here's this piece of paper. You're going to go in the basement, and they're going to take out all your teeth. They're going to extract all your teeth. And after they extract all your teeth, <clears throat> they're going to fit you for a, a radiation mask. And I had no idea what the fuck a radiation mask was. Uh, do you? No. It's an Iron Maiden. So they take this Hollywood. It's cool. It looks like Spider-Man's web, and they pour it, or they like spray it over you. And then it hardens literally in 15 seconds. And they, and it's funny because it just completely mold. It goes, and it, I'll send you a picture. Oh, no, you know, I know what that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's so, like around the fruit. Like, it looks like that. It's like, pears, like that, like, but it turns into hard plastic. It turns into hard plastic. It turns oh, into okay. like a net. Yeah, just oh, like that. Okay, so, what okay. they do is when they zap you in a radiation chamber, they, they put you on this thing and it, it's like a, C- a CT a scan. scan yeah, or yeah, CT yeah. scan. You go yeah. in and they zap you. Um, it locks you down so you don't move like a millimeter. Wow. Like you can't, you, you literally, like to, to inhale is like not enough clearance to even inhale. They gave you, they gave me Xanax and Valium. And I wanted, I insisted on being the, you know, at North, and it, because the story was, um, I had, you know, if it weren't for my friends, my best friends and my family, I, I really think that was the biggest component besides all the outpouring of love and support I got from strangers, which yeah. is the other thing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> when I was told that I had to have all this done, I, I was a zombie. I took the elevator downstairs. It was like out of a movie. It was like out of a 
horror movie. I'm in this rusty old elevator. Like a freight elevator? Kind of going down yeah. into the basement. I'm in the waiting room. There's uh, dozens of people, and I'm sitting there waiting for three hours, and I'm just kind of <laughs> staring like Disbelief, I'm going to get yeah. all my teeth taken yeah. out. Like, I can't believe all my teeth. And then you start thinking. And I thought, okay, I have scars all over my hands from knocking out people's teeth. And I thought, okay, I know exactly how many teeth I've knocked out in my lifetime. And I'm getting that Is exact this karma. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and then I, I start to panic. I'm like, holy fuck. I'm, you know, I can't believe I'm getting my teeth taken out. I, I, you know? And so literally after three, four hours of waiting, I, God's honest truth, right hand to God, the dentist comes out and he's in a, uh, like an like apron, a, like, a like a rubber apron, a rubber all apron. over it. He's got gloves like on. Like a butcher, and, yeah. <laughs> and he comes out. And he's splattered in blood, and he literally says, "I'm sorry, no more appointments today. You're gonna have to make appointments to come back." I walk up to the nurse. I'm like, "The doctor gave me this note. I have to get it done today because they want to start treatment right away." She's like, it, "Your best shot is in a week and a half." I go, "Fine, I'll take it." She's like, "Go across this hallway to get your." Radiation masks fixed, fitted. I go across the hallway. I sit there for an hour and a half. And then doctor comes out and says, we can't take any more appointments today. Wow. So you're going to have to come back. And I said, well, I'm coming back in a week and a half. Can I come sooner or at least on the same day? And they're like, you can come sooner. So I walk out of the hospital of Stroger. And I'm, I lived, here's the weird thing. I lived on Ogden and Monroe in a loft and mm -hmm. Stroger was literally, you know, five minute walk. Okay. It's on Damon and Ogden. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking and I'm like, okay, well I've hid this giant, like the whole, this whole time, the whole time my parents didn't know that I, I told them that Not I had a Thanksgiving. Um, I, I wore a fleece and oh. a turtleneck. Uh -huh, okay. And when there was a little bandage, and when my mom saw it, moms know everything. All right. She's like, what is that on your neck? I'm like, oh, I had a cyst removed. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So <clears throat> didn't tell my girlfriend at the time. Um, I called my best friend, Corinne, who's also in the restaurant business. She's a, you know, a general manager with the Boca Group. And at the time, uh, she had her own restaurant. And I called her and didn't realize that I was just, tears are pouring down my face. And I'm, I, uh. I'm trying to verbalize and express what I'm feeling to her and she's picking everything up and she's like, Jace, like you're, you know, you, you've got this, you're the most, you're the strongest, most positive person I know. And she said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to uh, get you out of that hospital. You're going to not do that. You're going to get a second opinion. And she literally, uh, you know, put her family, her own family, her husband and her two kids and told him what was going on with Uncle Jason. And then she went to the hospital for the next three days and stood in line and filled out paperwork and got me a grant. Oh, wow. So that I was insolvent at the time. I had, uh, I didn't have a restaurant. I didn't have insurance. I was in between, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, why county? But I guess yeah. that makes sense. And then so <clears throat> she found... Uh, she found funding so that uh, to the tune of $300,000 would cover all my treatment, not my personal bills and my medication, but for the treatment. And then uh, I talked to one of my best friends and said, who is the best mm -hmm. uh, cosmetic doctor or dentist, periodontist? And they said, oh, he's this guy. 
and he's literally on uh, North Avenue and Sheffield. So I went to his office and I walked in and I immediately started crying because as soon as I walked in, I saw his face and he's just so kind. And, you know, it's amazing when you, had he been a dick or just, I don't know, a person that wasn't so hospitable and caring and nice yeah. and like soulful, I would have probably been fine. But the fact that it, I saw someone and you see this light in them, right? I, I immediately was like, uh, I have to get all my teeth taken out. And it's very emotional for me and it's very traumatic. And, and he sat there and he started to cry. And he goes, can I tell you something? And he's like, do you have stage four squamous cell carcinoma? I'm like, yeah. Wow. He's like, my wife got diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma wow. stage four uh, three weeks, four weeks ago. So she's four weeks ahead of you. And she's at Northwestern. The number one guy in the nation for throat cancer is a guy named Skip Peltzer. Huh. And so I'm going to make a call to him and get an appointment for you. Wow. Right? Goosebumps. Wow. So <clears throat> then I go home, and that night, Corinne calls me and says, I found the number one. Oh, no. Did she find the same, same throat guy? Throat cancer doctor. Same He's guy. at Northwestern. Oh. And his name is Skip Peltzer, and I got you an appointment. I go, <laughs> this is fucking amazing. So I, I, I go to the appointment to meet uh, Skip Peltzer, and he tells me everything they did at uh, Cook County was correct. They took out the lymph nodes. They took out tonsils. You do have to get all your teeth removed. Um, so he's like, shine that. Uh, you're going to get your treatment here. You're going to get uh, your radiation done here. You're going to get your chemo done here. Um, putting you in touch with the head of oncology and the head of radiation. And every Monday they'll meet with you to discuss. They'll have a whole team of people that just discuss your case. Mm. And um, they'll schedule everything for you. And so I went uh, the day after uh, I went out to I went to Christmas Eve and went out with my best friends, uh, Eric Sawatoski and Steve Abrams and uh, all my best friends uh, that I still surround myself with every birthday that sit at my table. Um, Esther Garcia and Curtis Duffy and all mm -hmm. my dear Colin Crowley, they're all my best friends and uh, Chris Gerber. Mm -hmm. um, we all uh, went out to dinner. Then that was Christmas Eve. Uh, Christmas Day, my mom made uh, King Crab Legs, my favorite. And then the day after Christmas, I had all my teeth extracted. Wow. And then, uh, so then two weeks after that, I started radiation uh, every morning at 7.30 in the morning at Northwestern. And then every Monday I had my chemo and I went through uh, treatment until March 7th. Mm. I, I had a real bad spell towards the end of treatment. Till I was in uh, hospitalized and unconscious for... Well, from Seven what? Days. Too much chemo? Uh, or? You ready? Yeah. <clears throat> um, from my first day of radiation treatment, uh, they put a five milligram fentanyl patch on oh, my shoulder. Oh, so you OD'd on, did you OD? No. Oh, no. It was Sorry, the opposite. I keep jumping. You had too much pain. It was the opposite. So they put a, it wasn't even a five milligram. I think it was a one milligram. So not even enough. You and they said, we're gradually going to, the patches are going to grow, and by the end of your treatment, you're going to be on 175 milligrams of fentanyl. And somewhere towards the middle, we're going to give you two bottles of morphine as your baseline. So every day you're going to have to orally. They gave me a hypodermic uh, needle, like a plunger without the needle. Syringe, yeah. And I would have to dose myself a few times a day and directly swallow the morphine. 
and then uh, a bunch of rinses because uh, I lost my salivary glands and my taste buds. And, uh, you know, the equivalent of basically was liquid cocaine. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. To numb the pain. And it, it's funny because like a idiot, uh, when I said that I have a, a high pain threshold, I meant it. Like I never... So you didn't want to. Take I never it. took anything synthetic. I never put anything synthetic. I, like the, I, I smoked a lot of marijuana right. in my youth, but I never took aspirin. I didn't like cough syrup. I didn't like taking uh, Advil or mm. I didn't like anything synthetic, mm -hmm. like fake. And I knew that I was being pumped full of platinum-based poison. Uh, it was killing me slowly on a cellular level from the inside out. So foolishly, uh, and against my better judgment and my the pleading of my girlfriend at the time, Myra Aguayo, um, I didn't, I didn't take any of the medications. I didn't, yeah. you know, put the patch on and uh, I wound up in cardiac arrest essentially by the time the I got to the hospital. Here, yeah. Cause my body was managing all this pain. I was shaking and I looked like a junkie and I was like, couldn't sleep and my hair was falling out in clumps, but I assumed it was from the radiation and the chemo, but it was all pain stress. Wow. So I went to the hospital. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And then Corinne took me to the hospital. And then I said, I just want to go home. They're like, no, we want to keep you. And I was like, absolutely not. I ripped everything off. And I was like, I'm out of here. I didn't sleep that whole night. The next day I was even worse. And I literally looked like a junkie. Like stuff was just pouring out of my face and my body. And I, I couldn't like stand still. It was convulsing. And when they went back to the hospital the next day, my heart rate was 160 miles. You didn't, you didn't go to the minute. ER. You waited till the next day. Oh my God. <laughs> and they said, you know, we don't understand with all this pain management meds you're on. You should be like, I'm I like, haven't I never, been taking I never took it. Whoops. <laughs> Whoopsie. I never, I never, they're like, what? And they're like, this is insane. We've never seen this and yada, yada. And so they, I wound up, uh, unconscious in the hospital, uh, hooked up to an IV with, uh, Dilaudid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and fentanyl up the up, up the, the ass wazoo, yeah. and uh yeah, yeah, yeah. i was you know, i didn't realize you know one of the greatest things to this day is when i realized how many people came to visit me when i was in the hospital oh. and didn't have my wits about me and um it's you know i f i live a life now that i feel like george bailey from it's a wonderful life like mm -hmm. i live a magnified life uh full of just gratitude and i'm so blessed and lucky and has so much love and was uh, given so much blood uh, uh, love blindly mm -hmm. um, that it changed my life and made me who I am today and had my friends not uh, behind my back started a, 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 a GoFundMe page oh, so I could pay okay. my rent and the medications I was you know it was uh, a couple thousand dollars a week just for the meds um you know, and then not being able to drive and, you know, Ubers and all that. My my, all, my girlfriend and my best friend saved my life. Mm -hmm. Literally. Mm -hmm. You know, and what man can say that? What man can say that the love, but here's the craziest thing, the restaurant community. The biggest donations to my 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 GoFundMe page were everybody in the restaurant. I had, I had uh, Anne-Marie Segoy. I had all these restaurant tours and and people in the restaurant community um offering to do um fundraisers for me at their restaurants at their bars um i was overcome and overwhelmed 
And that's what really changed me into the person that I am now that, you know, tells myself on a daily basis that real courage is showing your heart and your vulnerability every single day as much as you can. So, you know, what other medium can you use except social media? So I'm very transparent on social media. I yeah. try to keep it clean and not too yeah. crazy, but it, it's it's a lot but of motivation, positivity, you're this, love. You're, yeah, transparency, because you're the same in person too. I like, I'd like to think so. I yeah. hope so. Like I, you know, we're all just trying to be better versions of ourselves. And as you get older, you know, there's a person that you want people to see. There's uh, the person that you think people think you are. Mm-hmm. There's a person you think you are. There's a person you and, think that yeah, exactly. other people think you are. Yeah. <laughs> when you get older, you're just, you're trying to make all four of those people the same, just yeah. one person. Like uh, I'm just trying to be me. That's all I can be. I'm trying to be a good person. I was no angel. I had faults. I made mistakes. But the great thing about life is that it's never too late to try to be a better person, to try to like look at your flaws and mistakes and learn from them and, uh, you know, use that as a fuel, use that as energy, good energy. And then again, um, to really try to, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to impact um, my life every day and other people's life every day based on what happened to me. Am I force feeding it to them? Absolutely not. Am I trying to be a beacon or a light or someone that people can say, hey, that's that guy. I don't want to be defined by any one thing, but if there's like, oh, hey, that's, you know, Jason the restaurateur, you know, he's he's someone that everybody loved working for or we loved his restaurants or, hey, that's Jason the martial artist. He's a great martial artist and he's done a lot of great things in martial arts or that's Jason the cancer survivor. Like we can't believe he had that disease and he's doing all these things right. to try to, you know, be a light of hope and inspiration for people that yeah. are going through it or have gone through it. Um, what's, what's something that you tell people if you were to work with someone right now, what, what, what would be a general theme that you would tell them, pass on to them? Someone that, that's going that through stage cancer. four right now. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, um, there's a girl named Julie Perilla. Uh, that lives in the suburbs, and she, I, I met her. Uh, my best friend Pat White, who plays a crucial role in my life. I'll, I'll tell you why. Some of the greatest things I've done in my life, or some of the greatest times I've had in my life. Yeah. One was working at the Mercantile Exchange for twenty years. Okay. Not only did I make a really amazing livelihood, I had so much fun, and I met crucial people in my life, including the father of my godson, Ralph Davila, and all these amazing friends, and my old boss uh john fiandaka who started my health page for me oh okay um and it always helps me out but uh pat white got me my job but we were bouncers together oh he going back to the high i fight dirty right uh wheelhouse in the 80s and 90s i'd always heard a story about this kickboxing bouncer who was crazy that's him yeah. Oh, don't we? <laughs> that uh, he was legendary. And, you know, um, on that same side of the coin, he had heard rumblings in the story about this crazy Asian bouncer oh! at Cairo who's knocking people out. And we both had this in our culture at the time, which was, you know, you think about it now, it's just so funny. It's like a bad <laughs> Patrick Swayze movie, right? Um, we'd heard about each other, and one night I got arrested. 
uh, I got put in jail for, I was working at a bar. While bouncing? Yeah. Oh. And the, the, you know, the guy filed a complaint. I filed a counter complaint, but I had to go get processed right. in jail. And then the eye bonded me out. And I'm like, well, I got the night off. I'm going to go to Neo where he's a bouncer. <laughs> and I'm going to go like just hang out there and right. see if I can meet this guy. And I'm walking down the, if you know anything about Neo, I'm walking down the alley and <laughs> I start laughing. Because at the end of the alley, I already see uh, who are not only my Shidokan brothers now, but also... Uh, bouncers that we worked together later in life, uh, Bo Medenica, Pat White, and Ralphie Lanaris. And, uh, you know, Bo immediately walks inside and it's just Ralphie and Pat. And I see this this guy that looks like, uh, uh, if you looked under in, in the late 80s under the dictionary for yuppie, that's, exa- you know, he had the blue sport coat, khaki pants. Okay. Uh, okay. Penny loafers. Oh, right? God, yeah. Um, plaid shirt. Mm. <clears throat> maybe even an ascot, like a real douchebag. And uh, he's he squares off with Pat, and he's like in this like karate or taekwondo stance. <laughs> and Pat like looks at uh, uh, Ralphie, and they're leaning against their motorcycle because they had their motorcycles parked. He put his of helmet course on. they did, huh? He put his helmet on, and I see him like mimic the guy doing the stance, and then I I see him proceed to just decimate this kid, huh. right and then he takes off the helmet and puts it back on his motorcycle and he's like that you know and so i never introduced myself i you know paid the cover and then i walked inside had a few drinks came back out and went home and then you know months later i meet him uh i hire him at drink oh. at the time where i had you know security staff yeah. and i hired everybody that worked at neo and kaboom and everywhere else and we became friends like really close friends. Um, he taught me a lot because I um, eventually joined the Shidokan gym because okay. at that time I was taking Hapkido and Kung Fu. Oh. I was studying uh, Shaolin Kung Fu uh, on Belmont and Ashland. Oh, uh, badass. Coincidentally, across the street from the dojo that CFC is at right now. Oh, really? I went to high school with Kenny Tai and his father, Grandmaster uh, Tai, uh, oh. owned a bunch of Shaolin Temples and I was studying Kung Fu with them for many years. Huh. Uh, they both unfortunately passed away oh. um, in the last, you know, seven, eight years. <clears throat> and, uh, well, and uh, so he got me the job and then he's, I joined the gym, the, jo- the dojo, and, uh, you know, he was, people always ask me, who's your favorite fighter? And uh, number one is Pat White, number two is Mike Tyson. I, wow! Was, really? Yeah, because he was a, a marvel physically and mentally to behold. Um, he was the uh, Oak Brook version of Mike Tyson. If you oh, ask me, oh, that's funny. Yeah, and so we became really great friends. And he, you know, gave me. He did one of the best things that you know. That's what friends do. Like I got him a job, uh, bouncing, making lots mm-hmm. of cash, and. He got me a job at the Merck, and I was there for 20 years and became an integral part of my life, and he became an integral part of my life. Um, and then it was odd because his sister got cancer before, oh. uh, got breast cancer before I did. And so when I told him I uh, had gotten cancer, he said, well, I said, what did your sister do? He's like, all I know is she didn't curl up on a ball and focus on not feeling good in the treatment like she got her laptop and she worked and so i kind of i kind of took his word to heart mm-hmm. and literally the whole time i was going through treatment i i would 
you know, I would leave the hospital at 8 a.m. I wouldn't go home and curl up on a ball and go to sleep. I would um, actually go to my restaurant, Juno, which was being built and built out and demoed and everything. And I would go there for a few hours every day and show my best friend, Edgar, how I wanted things painted and how I wanted, you know, he was kind of the GC uh, directing the contractors and everybody there for me while I was going through my treatment. Mm -hmm. Then I would go home and I would get a massage. I'd go see my best friend now, Jonathan Makoff, who's, uh, you know, he does muscle therapy, chiropractor, energy work. He's so much more than a holistic healer. He's uh, an intuitive uh, mm. holistic healer. And he would treat me. Uh, he later on uh, donated 50% of all his uh, earnings in a month to my health fund. Mm. Um, with with what specifically? Cupping, acupuncture? All that. He oh. does. Well, no, he... So I, would, my, I went to... I went to a different, I went to my cousin for acupuncture. I went to Jonathan for, uh, to get energy work and um, uh, chiropractic sessions. I went to an Ayurvedic uh, clinic and got uh, Ayurvedic uh, oil treatments um, to help bleed out radiation and inflammation in my body. Um, I got a massage twice a day in the morning and at night. All that was very, very expensive. I went um, to the colonic institute and got colonics because i you know i was only drinking one can of insure a day and then it takes four days to pass it because you couldn't you can't stomach it well what happens when when you're on that strong of chemo it kills all your fast moving cells and so i was always constipated uh it would go in as one can of insure but it would come out like a lump of clay yeah to be kind of no, too yeah. much information. No, it's all good. Um, but then at the Klonic Institute, they really taught me a lot about nutrition and, you know, juicing and things you could do um, so you wouldn't have to take the insurer because it was too hard to pass. Mm-hmm. I had a, a titanium chemo port yeah. uh, in, put in, and so the, I was also getting my IVs and fluids through that. Through that, a port cap yeah. Delivered to the house. So it's you know, it was really bad. But, you know, getting back to Pat. Uh, yeah. It, he now uh, he now run. He's a tremendous athlete. He uh, was an Ironman. Oh. He was a marathon runner and cyclist and triathlete. Yeah. And now he has his own human performance and uh, Muay Thai boxing oh, okay. gym in St. Charles. And uh, me and my best friends and students um, would always go out there since he opened uh, his facility. And one of the people I met there was this uh, one of his students, um, Julie Perilla, and. Um, he put me in contact with her just a week ago and, um, I'm talking to her and there's really nothing like, I'm sorry I got so long winded. No, you're good. But the answer to your question is, is that what do I say? I, I, I tell them what works for me and what works for me was being open to a lot of love from strangers because I really firmly believe that everything is energy. It's science. It's not a myth or a new wave Mm. Uh, ideology of thinking buzzword yeah or, or holistic like holistic is a thing like the, the greatest thing that could happen was that pat told me not to curl up in the ball and die and what worked for his sister uh, managing the treatment and jeremiah johnson telling me from day one like this is dead ass serious this is your life sell everything and do everything that makes you feel good if you want to get a massage get a massage if you want to get acupuncture like you have to do the western treatment mm-hmm. which is radiation and chemo so I immediately did everything that was holistic and Eastern, everything. 
And then when I was cleared from the doctor after I finished my treatment, which is about uh, two, two and a half months after, mm. <clears throat> I went to an integrative therapist and got uh, vitamin C uh, mm. IVs every week mm. uh, to help rebuild uh, vitamin C is really beneficial on a cellular level for your body after mm -hmm. going through such like radiation and, and, and chemo poison. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he started a whole holistic program on how to repair, um, my throat, like everything mm -hmm. disintegrated, uh, where yeah. I was radiated, literally everything that I, I had real bad radiation burn. I had, I had, uh, canker sores, mm -hmm. my whole mouth. Like I took a picture and I since erased it. I can handle all the pictures I took of myself. Yeah, that's brutal. The one right? thing I deleted was a picture of me when I opened my mouth and my whole lip, both my lips were white uh, canker sores and everything inside was again. And then the roof of my mouth, the soft palate disintegrated. Wow. So I would put my tongue on the roof of my mouth and there was nothing there. Oh my God. Um, it was really bad. Yeah. Um, and so what I tell everybody is do everything that makes you feel good. If listening to, and what I did is I watched nothing but funny movies. I didn't watch the news. I didn't go on the internet. I watched comedies every day. Pat, uh, Pat White came over and watched Shameless with me. Uh, Esther Garcia came over and we watched, uh, you know, Planet Earth and things like that. John Castle came over and we watched, you know, uh, really quirky, bizarre movies, but I tried to always keep everything and surround myself with positivity. Everything I absorbed um, from through my eyes, all my senses was Positive. positivity. Yeah. I didn't let my mom uh, come see me once. She would meet me at the radio. My mom and dad would meet me at seven o'clock in the basement where they do the radiation, and that was it because I didn't want to expose that. Like, <clears throat> you have an Asian mom, yeah. And as tough and as strong as they are, when any mother, you know, when their child gets sick, they get sicker. Mm. You know, my mom's not a religious woman. She's a Buddhist too, but no. she went to Holy Name Cathedral every night and prayed. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you're their world. Yeah. So when my mom said, I want to move in with you and take care of you, I said, absolutely not. I don't want to expose you to that. Um, plus, it would make me feel bad. It would make me feel worse knowing to see my mom the way my mom would look at me, knowing that she'd be I, extra that I, that much more yeah. worried. Yeah, and so you know, my lifeline and the rock and the amazing uh, component uh, throughout the whole thing was my girlfriend, my living girlfriend at the time. Um, our relationship went to another level when I got when I told her I had cancer, mm -hmm. and she literally was a nurse and an angel and a psychiatrist and you know her life and her health was greatly affected by you know cancer affects everybody around you and that's the worst thing is you don't have control over yourself or anybody around you when you get cancer and that's the most daunting part is that you lose control um mm. she couldn't sleep uh she, you know she was just always stressed out and just so giving she gave 150 percent of her soul and her heart and her love to me for for such a long time and you know and since then now we're great friends mm. you know we're best friends yeah um corinne uh pat all the people who are there for me when i was at my lowest are here with me at my highest um i the value that they have is i i wouldn't be able to express it. I wouldn't be able to fill enough oceans with what I feel for 
the people and the, you know those people all saved my life and then there's the hard task of all the people that donated to my GoFundMe page and all the people that the thousands of people mm-hmm. that posted stuff on Facebook and Instagram like hang in there we love you we don't even know you but you know we're wishing you a speedy recovery and and I sent you ten dollars yeah you know not all added up I had almost forty thousand uh, dollars to help pay my rent and my bills and my car payment and all that stuff and the groceries because you know living a holistic life is not cheap well what would you say to someone who wasn't as fortunate is there anything to say yeah you know i've thought about that so many times because i had resources available to me that weren't normally available to anyone am i i was insolvent I was in a bad place financially, but was I at a poverty level that a lot of people are? Um, Mm. I had to experience that level when I was at Stroger. Right. And had it not been for Corinne, my best friend in the whole world, who, you know, put her own life and family uh, on hold to get me the grant. Right. Um, Here's what I would say. The only thing you really, really ever have in life is hope. Um, whether you're rich, poor, in a good situation or bad situation, you know, had I had to stay a stroger and go through all the treatment and everything that I went to, would it has been as savory and comfortable as it was at uh, Northwestern? Probably not. Um, the only thing I can say in regards to that is that you can't give up hope you have to that's the thing about martial arts and going back to the question earlier is that you know had it not been for martial arts particularly Shido Khan and working out every day sometimes twice a day um, my body completely in a, a a constant stasis where I was always healing like I was sore every day and then I would I was always healing. If I wasn't lifting weights or doing resistance training or doing core training or just plain doing, you know, the cardio involved in martial arts and the sparring and the pad work and all that, it all prepared you mentally. I thought I was preparing myself for coronavirus, uh, (laughs) pandemic, apocalypse, or maybe I'd have to defend uh, my girlfriend or wife or mom on the street against multiple attackers I never thought in a million years that I would be training so hard really uh, to be emotionally prepared for a fight with my own self. It wasn't with cancer. I touched on it earlier. The amount of energy that took to be positive, it's easy to be negative. It's easy to say, ah, fuck it. This is cancer. I'm going to just lay here Mm -hmm. and curl up in a ball and sleep Mm -hmm. and um, deal with it. Like, kind of what's going on right now. Like, uh, you want to just lock yourself in your apartment and wait for it to blow over? Or do you want to fight? And for me, whether I'm a good fighter in the ring, which I'm not, I'm a great, I'm the guns of fucking Navarone. Uh, I'm Mike Tyson on fucking steroids when I'm on the street. Mm -hmm. I have no doubts or all the confidence in the world if you put me you put me in front of anyone on the street or more than one person on the street, I will prevail. Especially if I'm defending myself or something. I'll never start a fight. 
in the ring, that's all. Uh, it's all relative. It's all subjective. Like there's in the ring, I'm just playing people that that a lot of my students, Curtis, <laughs> like, you know, uh, a lot of people are surpassed me in my skill level, whether I'm black belt or whatever. Yeah. That's the greatest thing about martial arts is it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime journey to just constantly practice and try to be perfect so that you settle for excellent. And I never knew in a million years that all of that training would really just strengthen my resolve emotionally, mentally, and, uh, and my soul to be a strong person, to really know my own strength inside and tell myself, and I told Julie this, I've told several people this, that I've either mentored or come in contact with that have contracted and gotten cancer, that it's, it's more important to be strong than to feel strong. I never felt strong. I didn't have a choice. What was I going to do? Not be strong? I'd say, fuck it. Yeah. Uh, I got cancer and there's X percentage that I'm not going to make it and die. I never felt strong, but I had to be strong. I had to be strong for my mom, who I knew was crying probably two-thirds of the day when I wasn't there. I had to be strong for all my friends. I had to be strong for... You know, my girlfriend who was like literally putting her life on hold, every aspect of her life, her family, her friends, her own life to like help me yeah. become better. Um, strangers that didn't even know me. So, um, you know, martial arts became such a big part of my life and me being able to tell people, hey, you're human. You can't always uh, feel strong. You, you'll never feel strong going yeah. through this battle, but you have to be strong. And that's easy to do um, because then what I found myself doing bleeds into uh, the present day, which was scouring. We, we live in an age where you can go on the internet and find anything. And I do it every day. I look for things on the internet uh, besides like uh, bulldog puppies and other stuff that I love looking at. I'm always scouring the internet. Um, for things that are inspirational and motivational, TED Talks and people who have like gone through the worst struggles and adversities in life and come out on the other side, not only uh, surviving it, but thriving it and, you know, making an impact because of what they learned, you know, um, and trying to not have, not profit from it uh, financially, but uh, emotionally and universally saying wow i really feel good about myself that i can give back in this particular way mm -hmm. and profit from it and have that emotional currency uh bank mm. account full to the brim mm. you know my emotional bank book i'm the richest man in chicago i have the greatest friends that are family i made them my family um yeah very common phrase i hear from you is best friend you have a lot of best friends I'm the, I, literally, you know, what do your parents uh, tell you and what do all the cliches and my parents tell me? You, if you go through life with maybe one best friend, you're the you're luckiest lucky. guy in the world. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And all my best friends are, it's amazing. Uh, Esther Garcia is one of my best friends. She did all my tattoos. On a weekly basis, I get bombarded with emails and inbox messages like, I just want to get a tattoo from her. Can you put in a good oh. word? There's like a three-month <laughs> waiting list. I'm like, I don't have that relationship with her. She's like my best friend, and I don't ever do that. Yeah. You know, Curtis Stuffy. Right. You know how many people oh, yeah. inbox oh, message yeah, me, exactly. text message me, email me like, you're friends with them, you're training with them. Can you ask him this? Can you ask him that? Will he do this? I'm like, that's my best friend for a reason. I don't do that. Yeah. 
uh, Eric Sautowski, who's by far my most prominent friend on social media. His son's my godson. I love him. Uh, he is like a brother to me. Uh, Chris Gerber, uh, Ralph Davila, um, you know, I'm Paul Davidson, who lives in New it's York. It's not only crazy to, to have that many best friends, but that many best friends that are thriving at life. They're all thriving. They're all in thriving life. in life. They're all thriving That's in insane. life. Insane. Yeah, and they're all super talented and creative, except for Paul. <laughs> uh, Paul in New York is, you know, he's very, uh, he's very like logical and non-emotional, but he he really champions life and knows how to live life to the fullest. He's one of the smartest um, men I know. I my mentor. Who you know? We could do a whole episode on my mentor, George Millman. Brought sushi to California in the late '60s. Mm. Was an entertainment lawyer. Produced the play and the movie Hair. Mm. Uh, introduced me to Timothy Leary and was Timothy Leary's uh, best friend and attorney. Oh, um, he managed Roxy. Uh, he was the CEO of Mattel Toys. He uh, taught me everything about wow. hot cuisine. How did your paths cross? Was that <laughs> so? Uh, um, when I was running security and had, for whatever it was worth at the time for the the equity uh, and reputation, I I cultivated being this guy that you wanted to hire if you needed a bouncer, or you needed oh. someone to do security. An uh, eighteen year old kid by the name of Chris Millman, uh, who you know later became my best friend. Uh, approached me in high school. I was, you know, a young adult. I was in my mid twenties, and he asked me to um, provide security for a loft party. And he was going to charge as like a kegger, and he was going to oh. charge twenty dollars per person. I'm tearing up right now because he played such an influential part in my life. And listen to this story. He asked me to provide security, <clears throat> and I said, "Sure, it'd be a thousand bucks." He he said, "Fine, I'll meet you tomorrow." I'd like to meet the whole crew, and I showed up the next day. He gave me a thousand bucks, and it was me and my friend Travis. <laughs> and he goes, "It's just you two. And I go, "That's all you're gonna need." I go, "Trust me, it's a bunch of high school kids. That's all you're gonna need." And uh, you know, Travis was six foot one and about three hundred pounds, and <clears throat> we became great friends. And we smoked a joint, and uh, maybe a year. Like I was also uh, working in a kitchen. He was an amazing uh, cook and wanted to go to chef school. And uh, we were thick as thieves and joined at the hip and we're always hanging out together. And his father, George, <clears throat> one day approached me. George or Greg? George Millman. George? Okay, it's George Millman. Okay. I uh, was living in a studio. I had gotten an apprenticeship with a financial firm uh, and a commodities firm to be an account executive, basically to sell commodities over the phone. Okay. It's all 100% commission. And, oh. and I was making, uh, I was living off of bouncing and <clears throat> uh, let's just say, how do I say it? Uh, I was in the collections business <laughs> for a while. And <clears throat> he's, you know, um, Chris and I would get together, smoke pot and do these lavish dinners where we would raid his father's uh, uh, cellar and we'd cook these, extravagant meals for our friends and we'd pair everything with wine and yeah you know dream about opening our own restaurant one day and we became close friends and his father approached me one day and said you know um 
he taught me one of the first things about positivity and energy and success in life. And he said, you know, <clears throat> positivity attracts positivity. Negativity attracts negativity. He's like, you're a great positive influence on my son. I see how much, how different he is and you're very active and healthy and you're always positive and you're, you're, you're working three different jobs and you're struggling. He's like, why don't you move in with me? And I, and I scratched my head. I'm like, what do you mean move in? He's like, I want you to move in. We have, so in 19... 85, 86, he was living uh, in a corporate loft apartment next to St. Michael's Church that was uh, $12,000 a month. So you can imagine what kind of crib it was yeah. back in 1985. Right. And uh, he was setting up uh, Oak Brook Polo Club and all the real estate land deals wow. for Michael Butler in Oak Brook. Oh, wow. Like this, you know, he's my mentor for a reason. He's, he's a grand poop, but he's a badass motherfucker. Yeah. And <clears throat> so I I said, yeah, absolutely. So I lived with him. Then they moved. They moved back to California where they were from. And, you know, my best friend Chris at the time grew up uh, going to school with Tom Petty's son. And, oh, sure. uh, you know, just wow. like this whole different culture. So my very ex first experience in California was visiting them. And uh, it was a birthday party held for George uh, at Timothy Leary's house, and I'm sitting there smoking pot with Grace Jones oh my God. and Taylor Negron, the uh, uh, the pizza guy from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Really? And, oh, uh, and then in the garage is the editor of Time, uh, Newsweek. What? People from NASA. Uh, Timothy Leary's son became an innovator in the video game uh, oh, industry wow. uh, when that whole thing was just uh, uh, really? a okay. seed. Um you know, went to the uh, premiere of the Doors movie with Oliver Stone Whoa. and Timothy Leary at the Hollywood Ball. Yeah, and just yeah, shit yeah. like that, right? Like, who does that? Whoa. So he introduced me to a whole culture that was, it was unbelievable. And people wouldn't believe it when I told them, right? Uh, so my best friend, Chris, you know, we obviously lived in different uh, cities. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> He became John Travolta's personal chef. Oh, shit. So he lived with him and Kelly um, in their home in Florida and their home in California. And on their 747, wow. he was for six years their personal chef. And then uh, he passed away. No way. Yeah. When I opened Sushi Samba <clears throat> as a consultant in 2004, uh, Gary Sinise and Jordan Mosier came into dinner and I, I became very friends with both of them because of George. And I said, hey, you know, how's Chris doing and how's George doing? I haven't talked to George in a while. And he's like, you should call him. You know, Chris passed away. And I went outside and I cried. What? And, and then, uh, you know, ever since 2004, <clears throat> I've gone out as much as I can to, uh, you know, visit George and have dinner with him. And he connected me with, you know, you, you, know, you, you pay it forward. He introduced me to his best friend's granddaughter, who's... I mentored and she lived with me in Chicago and now she is literally the next big deal when it comes to pastry. She's the pastry sous at uh at um Bouchon, oh, Bouchon. In, oh. in Napa Valley. Uh she was the pastry sous at Spago. She ran uh, the pastry catering and everything in his uh, catering kitchen when she was fucking 20 years old. Huh. She is literally a prodigy. She is literally a savant when it comes to pastry. And okay, she's an amazing human being. Um, I love her dearly. She's 
next level. Yeah. And she's the future of, I think, where this industry is going to go. And not, oddly enough, it's really rooted in classic, traditional. Back to bay. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Uh, cuisine. But, um, you know, my mentor uh, is a big, huge part of my life and um, changed a lot of aspects of who I am and how I am now. And I'm just trying to emulate, you know, I, I try to be a living tribute uh, to everything that he's taught me. And, yeah. and, and you know, it's so funny because, you know, uh, they, they say never meet your heroes, right? And I met him and he was my hero. So it's not like, you know, he became my hero from meeting him because I said, this is, you know, he had the only Range Rover in Chicago. Um, back in that, there was no Range Rovers in Chicago at that yeah, time. Yeah, you weren't actively seeking out a mentor. No, I wasn't. And he just, the first time I had foie gras, the first time I ate uh, sweetbreads, uh, the first time I had a degustation menu, uh, tasting menu, the right. first time I drank wow. uh, a really amazing cognac and port and, um, you know, peaky toe crab and, you know... Th- the 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 first time I ate real authentic Vietnamese food was with him, and we'd go on these food adventures together. And he taught me so much about the restaurant business, business in general, but how to be the human being that he had became. Yeah, uh, how he evolved, and evolution is a big thing. So him and Timothy Leary co-authored lots of books about uh, evolution and the evolutionary rate, and how as a living organism on this planet you evolve. Timothy Leary with the psychedelics? Yeah. Badass. My my first time, I loved that. Well, you did it with him? Yeah. Get the fuck. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, um, you know, you couldn't talk about it before because everything was so oh, yeah. just taboo and illegal. Right, and now right. marijuana is legal, but I loved acid. Acid was exactly what it was. It's mind expanding. Um, you know, you abuse anything, it can be a bad thing. Right. Uh, if I would have just smoked one cigarette here and there who knows if i would have gotten throat cancer but i smoked two three packs a day because i love smoking yeah and you do anything that's bad for you that much it's gonna hurt you back do you think civilization could benefit from one hit of acid here's what i think i think right after high school everybody um has to work in a restaurant for one year oh okay and in that time they also have to do copious (laughs) amounts of acid yeah (laughs) copious yeah and here's why Humility, um, the sense of entitlement that permeates kind of our culture right now, but more importantly, the instant gratification and the lack of a gray area mm. in, in everything in this world, because everything is one extreme it's, or the other. Yeah, where we live in an extreme world where you can get literally anything that you want, and when but you then you're left with a feeling of, well, do I want it now that I've got it? Mm. there's that and then everything's black or white left or right democrat republican Mm. good bad rich poor happy sad right um you know the thing about acid as i know it and the way i was taught by the person that's insane yeah and so what did it did it show you all the colors between black and white here's what it did it opened up the doors of perception which is what like books have been all just Huxley right and the way you know everything was the pre the precursor to it so what I learned about LSD before I took it and the fact that the 
LSD I took for the very first time was made by Timothy Leary and Jerry Garcia's chemist. Uh, and this is common knowledge. Everybody I worked with in the clubs back then all did acid with yeah, me. Yeah. Um, all the other bartenders and <laughs> people I worked with because they knew I had <laughs> the greatest LSD on the planet. Um, you know, I never abused it. I would savor it. I would hold it for times. Watermarks in my life, just like tattoos, are kind of the same thing like how I used acid at the time. Was like whenever there was a time where I knew there was, you know, chaos usually precedes an amazing change. So hmm. I think all this chaos we're going through, yeah, it, it precedes something amazing that's going to happen. I, I really believe that. And the same thing with me emotionally, physically, whenever I was going through a time that I think, wow, I feel like myself, like I got to grow a new shell or evolve or change. I use it as like almost like a clinical mm -hmm. aspect. I mm -hmm. use it to help me gain insight oh, yeah. into something I normally wouldn't see, open my eyes or uh, have a different perspective on something. I never used it to like, as a party well, I did oh, a couple I mean, of times. <laughs> I took four-way window pane acid and went to the music box with my girlfriend oh, and we watched okay. the Japanese animation festival for 12 hours. Oh, that's insane. <laughs> but that was fun. But uh, nine tenths of the time. It's medicinal. It was. You respect it. it. It was like what, I guess what people that do ayahuasca now. Yeah. Are, are, are kind of seeking. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, I always used it to my benefit to grow somehow uh, mentally or emotionally or, or even physically. Right. Um, you know, for me, it was a drug I never wanted to abuse because, you know, um, when you learn about something before you do it, like I'll give you an example. I never drank alcohol until I was 35. Oh. My parents were in the restaurant business. I saw drunk people all the time. When you see all that nonsense and silliness and drunkenness and bad behavior, when by the time I got to high school and, right. you know, eighth grade, when people were like sneaking beers to get at it's parties. It's not a big deal like, anymore. Oh, I don't have a fucking drink. I don't want to be a jackass. Right. <laughs> Um, so the more I learned about LSD, the more I realized that, Hey, you know, Timothy Leary in a lot of his books, flashbacks, a lot of things like the only cure for depression is LSD. The, literally the only clinical in, done in the right environment with the right, uh, clinical assistance. The only cure for alcoholism he proved was LSD. And, um, how about rehabilitation? Yeah. He didn't experiment in Folsom prison which was the worst prison at the time in the yeah. late 60s. And every single um, convict that was a you know, felony class X or class one was a repeat offender up to like 85% of them were repeat offenders. After he took a control group of two dozen people, you know, did the clinical uh, treatment with LSD and rehab and therapy, to this day, not one single of those patients ever was returned back into the penal system. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Did you ever meet Jerry? Garcia? Never. Oh, never. I was never a deadhead. You're not a deadhead. Dead <laughs> I was, you know, I'm from a different time. Literally, sure. I'm not that old. Yeah. But for me, you have to understand. The, for me, the culminating point was freshman year of high school because before freshman year, everything was pot, acid, um, like Pink Floyd, yeah, Blue Oyster Cult, Black Sabbath, um, all the bands that I loved. And then in one year, it's Miami Vice, Cocaine, MTV oh. comes on, oh. Eurythmics, uh, New Order, Depeche Mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, everything goes from jeans and earth shoes and concert t-shirts to polos with the pop collars. Right, right. 
Right. All no more, more colors. Yeah, yeah. Not wearing socks with boat shoes and <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Um, and the whole culture changed. Yeah. And then music changed. Pop culture changed. You know, uh, everything was uh, cocaine and. Miami Vice. Yeah. It's making a comeback. There's a lot of newer gen- Everything new kids a comeback. going to dead cover yeah. shows and stuff like that. So Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Just let me see that. Um, you know what I'm waiting f- uh, to come back? Um, calling girls on the phone. Instead before of, you meet them. Yeah. Before you go on a first date. Like for weeks maybe. Like I hate texting. I do it because everybody texts. Millennials, they only text. They don't do email. Everybody my age, not my my mom texts me now. It took this, like, my mom didn't start texting me until literally a year ago. Okay. I don't hate texting. I like hearing a person's voice. I like the anticipation and the anxiety and the nervousness you have of, like, the crack in your voice when you're talking. Like, you want that vulnerability. You want that energy to come through. You're not hiding be, behind a screen. You can say anything. You can now. You can just send a dick pic to someone. Right. There's right. No, FaceTime. We got FaceTime. So there's why no not remorse. FaceTime? There's no humility. There's no repercussion. There's no anything. It's just, you know, how about this? How about a response to your texts? Them liking it. Right. Like that's a fucking response. Interesting. You know. So I'm hoping there's a return. Like everything's cyclical, and whatever's old is new again. And I'm hoping that telephones actually make a comeback like not well, knowing your, who's what, on the phone your, before you pick it what up what are your thoughts on facetime um facetime's great if you have children and you're away facetime's great if you're on uh i was in la for six months and you know i i i got home very late and so i just started dating my ex-girlfriend jasmine and for me to be able to FaceTime her occasionally was great because I could see my dog. Yeah. You know, she was staying, we were living together. She was at my house. So I got to see my apartment and see her with my dog in right, my apartment. Right. And it was great. And I, I, I think FaceTime is great, but, but what's left to the imagination? So my point is, is that when you're on the telephone with someone, like we need that, we need a return. Like if anything that's going to benefit from this quarantine, I hope is the social distancing. Like the fact that, now, you know, now maybe people will call each other. Now maybe people will write each other. Now mm. maybe maybe people will, like, engage on a different level so that when they do see each other, they're going to start back from square one. Like, I saw someone I had. I went grocery shopping for my parents today because I'm worried about them going out grocery. Right. I'm not worried for myself. I'll lick doorknobs and go out all day long. <laughs> I have no fear when it comes to the coronavirus. I fear for my my mom and dad. Right. So I went and bought them groceries, and I ran into my friend Julie um, at Mariano's, and we sat there and talked to each other for literally like twenty minutes. And well, were you waiting in line? Of, oh, no, you were, we're at the, the entrance okay. of Mariano's. Like okay. I just walked in. She, yeah. I was walking out. She just walked in, and like I smiled the rest of the day because I'm like the only time I've seen her. Literally, she used to watch my dog that passed away. She was my. She she took care of my dog when oh. I would go out of town, and my dog passed away a year and a half ago. So I literally have only seen her, and got, and I was telling her that I was like, oh, it's, I love all your little clips and stories that you put on social media. But I was like, holy shit! Like it took it, running into you. Uh, it took uh, running uh, into you to yeah. make me realize, like, wow, it's an amazing thing to like 
connected us for an I didn't right. care. She didn't care if I had Cronut. Like, we didn't elbow bump. Like, we hugged each other. Right, right. And right. I was like, I, I love you. It's great to see you. And look in her eyes. And you, you, you to see that. Here's the thing. Um, the reason I love what I do in both aspects is um, the human contact. You have the, the exchange of energy, uh, even being near it, you know. Yeah. And the other two parts uh, that I want to just touch on briefly because I know we got to wrap this up is um, cheeseburgers. They're an integral part of my life. Yeah. And fucking tequila. <laughs> have you ever had a cheeseburger that wronged you? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I think uh, cheeseburgers are like pizza and sucks. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty fucking good. Um, yeah. I never met a cheeseburger I didn't like. There had been, I've had bad cheeseburgers before, but you're like, yeah, really? It's still a cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and we both know my, my favorite cheeseburger is um, Chef Mike uh, from Cafe Marijan. He only does it on Thursdays. He makes it. Everything from scratch, and it's spectacular. I literally, I've said it, and I always joke, and I post it frequently, and I think, like, depression was a scam that he invented. As a chef, he he invented depression <laughs> so that he could sell more cheeseburgers because you could have the worst day in the world. You bite into that cheeseburger. Oh, like, man. It's like, oh, the, the, the cherubs come down. The sky opens up. Right, right. Uh, light shines on that uh cheeseburger from god and it's just my favorite cheeseburger um second is probably the loyalist which you're a fan of yeah um i love uh rootstock's cheeseburger i love scofflaw's cheeseburger and uh i think i would put scofflaw above loyalist because um, of the price point price point but it was yeah. like i liked it a little and the i like the fries and everything yeah. um but loyal is closer to here, so that's why it's just like a little more convenient. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a huge cheeseburger fan. I eat cheeseburgers three, four days a week. Damn. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I worked out a lot so I could look good naked. Yeah. Uh, now I work out a lot so I can eat three, four cheeseburgers a week. <laughs> and, um, you know, the greatest thing about, you know, everybody says it's kind of hard to fuck up. Cheeseburgers. I think cheeseburgers are kind of the equivalent of the um, the mainstream or American menu item. Uh, that's right. It, it's it's the same as sushi. Meaning, sushi is the most simplest thing. It's fish and rice. It's right, so simple. Like right, they say, right. how can you fuck up a cup of coffee? How can you fuck up a cheeseburger? Well, that's true because it's so simple. It's the bun and it's a beef patty and a slice of cheese. But it's it there's a lot going on there it's very complex and it yeah. has to be the right balance and you know everybody has i like this bun i like that bun but for me you know if you bite into that sucker and there is a pool of blood and grease dripping down your arm around the plate that's your first sign that you're in the right place um i don't like chewy buns, chewy buns i'm not yeah. a huge fan of potato buns um yeah. i like more brioche toasted mm. um okay uh, mm, yeah. cheeseburgers. I American cheese is always the way to go. Mm. Millennials don't like it, but they can go suck it. What do they like? What do, what do they like? What do they put on? Those? I don't know what they like. Who knows? And who even cares? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And then tequila. Tequila. Yes. With uh, I want to touch on um. 
what chefs and restaurants are trying like s- striving for um as far as awards is that is that like a valid thing to strive for is that something like that should be on, on someone's priority list here's the thing i i can't sp- speak for everyone but personally i know that you know that if you put in the work and you strive to be the best, just put your passion into making a consistent quality product and consistent quality service, really, like that's what all chefs and restaurateurs are concerned about. Like, I just want to, I just want to have my food speak for me, my voice, my message through my food and have it and hopefully have everybody love it. Right. Yeah. And love the quality of it, the consistency of it, more importantly, because it has to be consistent because that's what shows everybody that you're a professional and you know what you're doing. Right. It's always consistent. If they come in one time and it's this good, it's always going to be this good. I think the awards are exactly what it is. If you're really a passionate person about what you do, it's just an award to kind of say, pat you on the back and say, hey, yeah, you're right. All the hard work you did to make sure that this was consistent and done right, even when you're not there, but especially when you're there all the time, then the award is just that. It's an acknowledgement. The ones, and I think they're the ones that are on the younger side or maybe a little insecure, need the award first. Need to know that, oh, I'm... The validation. If you're going to open up a restaurant and your main goal is to win an award... You're not going to last. No, your main goal should be to make the guest happy. Yeah. staff happy yeah um and so don't get me wrong yeah I, I think awards chef Otto said the same thing oh did he yeah, yeah he said the same thing he he's he said he kind of put it more bluntly he straight up said i don't care <laughs> well everybody has to understand something about chef Otto, and i'm gonna speak on this because yeah. i'm he's a friend now yeah and i'll tell you the story of chef uh i couldn't stand him i thought he was a pompous asshole um I three months before he opened the restaurant, uh, Eater did a little blurb, and he was a dickhole. I thought I'm like, who the hell is this guy? He was like, uh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Uh, Chicago doesn't even have any good sushi. And then three weeks before he opened, and I told myself then I'm never going to support this guy. He's mm. a, he's not from Chicago, and not that I automatically not support people right, from Chicago, right. but people like that that yeah. are from Chicago, right? <clears throat> and then three weeks before he opened, Phil did, or someone did, a small article on, oh, oh one of the first three omakase bars, uh, sushi restaurants are going to open. Chef Otto's from Austin. And here's his statement. And they quote him saying, like, I've now they've been here for three months. I've eaten at a lot of sushi places. Uh, nobody knows what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> we have access to an international airport and can get, like, nobody even has good fish. Nobody even knows what good sushi is on the guest side. Like he was calling out right. guests that they didn't even know what good sushi was anyway. So I'm like, this guy's a fucking <laughs> asshole. I'm not going to support him. And uh, it was funny. I didn't even care to track his success or when he opened. I didn't just, I didn't, I'm like, he's, I don't even care what happens mm. to that guy. Three months later, one of my really good friends, um, said, hey, you know, I trust your judgment. I've gone to all your restaurants. I love your opinion and value it. And I know you don't probably, like the rest of the city, have a really good uh, perception or taste in your mouth about Chef Otto, but I bought the place out on Sunday 
He's closed on Sundays, and I bought the place out, and I want you to come as my guest, and I want you to give me your honest opinion. No shit. Because I think it's really great. And I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, okay, I understand. Then he called me the next, he texted me the next day, and he's like, look, I invited your best friend, Eric. <laughs> and will you, will, you, will you go? And, you know, I just, I want you to be open-minded, and I want you to, like, not uh, hold a grudge. And I'm like, he's like, will you do it for me? And I go, well, now that you put it that way, Absolutely, and now I have someone to sit next to, yeah, to talk shit uh, to about Otto. <laughs> so we go, and I sit there, and I the first thing is, I realize that he's nothing like what I had perceived. Interesting, because he's quiet. He's not saying anything. He said maybe one or two things right. about the rice, right. which right. impressed me because the yeah. rice, you know, uh, sushi not many people don't realize this, but like sushi literally means sour rice. So mm. the most important component of sushi is the rice, not the fish. Interesting. Although you have to have amazing fish, right. <clears throat> the rice is the most important part. And so the only thing he said was, I made this rice in small batches. Only there's eight people here right now. Um, I just make enough for eight people. I don't make it in large batches and it sits there and it cools off like it's body temperature. Mm -hmm. It's it's. And it's like risotto size yeah. pearls nice. of rice. Yeah. And, you know, all sushi rice, nine tenths of it comes from California, right? Okay. This is a hybrid uh, heirloom strain of rice from Japan. And only two restaurants in the United States, well, in the world, carry it. One's a three Michelin star restaurant Masa? in Japan. Oh, Japan, okay. And one's... Damn. One's Kyoten. Badass. So right away, as soon as I took the first bite, I go to... Eric, this fucking... This is amazing. <laughs> and Eric's just like that. He's like, he's like you know, he's, he's, he, he loves sushi. And uh, I think on the third bite, I I think Chef kind of read my reaction to it. He's like, you know, and he, he was very soft-spoken and very humble when he said the, his yeah. first words to me. He's like, he's like, you know, I know who you are. Pat told me he was inviting you and I really appreciate you coming. Um you know, to experience my omakase and I, you know, value your opinion and, you know, please tell me if you want more wasabi or less wasabi. You know, he tells everybody that. Right, and right, right. I just thought it was great that he finally engaged with his guests and yeah. with me. And then I'll be honest, uh, halfway through it, I think it was like, you know, 15, 16 bites. I think right around the 10th bite, I, I, my best friend Eric was like, and <laughs> Pat, my friend was sitting there like this and he's like, yeah, right. right He's like what I tell you, and I'm, and I'm holding, I'm reserving my opinion and my reaction and my expressions and everything. And I whisper into Eric's ear, I'm like, "Holy fuck, this is good sushi." And he's like, "He's like, I think it's great." I'm like, "This might be the best sushi in the city." And by the end of the meal, like it was the last uh, bite that he put up there, and he's like, "I'll be in the gallery, to you know, yeah. to receive you guys right. before you leave, and you know." take photos and if you want and whatnot and uh i waited till i went out there last i waited till everybody you know shook his hand and took pictures and everything i was like look and i looked him in the eye shook his hand i was like this is the best sushi i've had in chicago i think it's the best sushi right now and uh you know a lot of people in the industry who write about food or involved in food you know ask me my opinion a lot of times on what is great sushi and where i would go and I told a lot of influential, preeminent people uh, about it, and they wrote about it, and they talked about it, and they sent people there. And I did what I would do for anybody, not only because they're in the same industry as me, but 
to support and I genuinely felt good work. that strongly yeah. about it that it this is a place I love to go for sushi and I went back two or three times with Eric and Pat and then you know there's no everybody knows that you know I've I have an ex-partner uh, mm-hmm. who had a sushi restaurant with me and he opened his own omakase and he got a Michelin star and mm-hmm. I was very happy for him because you know I wouldn't have you know before we partnered I genuinely uh, we were friends and I generally thought not just because he's Korean he was one of the best sushi chefs mm. in the city and his sushi was great because he had his own style and I loved his style which was kind of feminine mm. it's very beautiful elegant sushi and it's pretty and he used flowers and orchids and everything was glass and eloquently yeah. and very uh, the presentation was very great experiences like I went twice and yeah. great experiences yeah and uh, I when he got a mission star, I was very happy for him and you may. And um, listen, what's good for anybody in the business is good for all of us, right? right? right. It just helps build our our notoriety and our reputation in Chicago as right. being, you know, the food capital of North America. Mm-hmm. Now. So uh, we connected and talked to each other. I've always wanted to do a project with Otto, and mm-hmm. I'm still hopeful that that's going to happen. We, um, I've been going to his restaurant almost on a weekly basis mm-hmm. and um, he's going to make some changes there that are really positive and yeah. amazing. He said he wanted to finally give back to the city. Yeah, which yeah. is smart because, you know, he became a Chicagoan the instant he realized, like, I'm getting back from Chicago exactly what I put into it. He's like, I all he's done is worked his balls off, yeah. right? Yeah. And even though despite... All the, and, and that's the greatest thing. So I think what one people don't realize is that he's gravely misunderstood. Yeah. He's so passionate and so um, he's got this laser focus he on does, what yeah. his goal right. and what his, uh, what his primary objective is that what he says a lot of times is misconstrued as, as being arrogant yeah. or cocky. Right. And I'll, I'll put it this way. Like one of the greatest quotes I ever heard was Ronda Rousey. Okay. And Ronda Rousey, a lot of people were hating on her and saying she's cocky and this and that and arrogant. And she simply said she's like, and she did it in a way that was very like curt, kind of like mm-hmm. he speaks without a filter, mm-hmm. right? It's not that he believes he's the best, he wants to be the best, but that's not the way it comes out. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So he said, Ronda Rousey, when they said, well, what do you say to all your contractors that say you're cocky and you're arrogant and this, that, the other, you're a champion and you're whatever, you're the best. Well, you know, how dare you condemn me for believing in myself, for mm. thinking I'm the best and wanting to be the best. Like, that's all I'm doing. Like, the way you see it is me being cocky and saying I'm the best. And I love that. But Otto literally is reinforcing positively. He's telling himself on a constant basis, I want to be the best. I got to be the best. Yeah. I don't want to ever be second. Yeah. I want to be different. I want to dare to be different in Chicago and do something that nobody else is doing. I was doing it, but in a different subtle way, you know, I wanted to steer people's heads and turn them in a different direction. Like let's honor sushi, the tradition of it. And the, the it's rooted in tradition, but let's show people a new style or a new way of doing it. And he's just boldly coming saying out, I'm not going to be subtle. This is, this is my style. If you notice table, his yeah. sushi is yeah. very luxurious. It's all about texture, mm-hmm. which is what I loved. One of the things I loved about BK sushi is that, um, like I said, it's, it's very uh, it's feminine, but it's feminine, but it's all a texture thing. Yeah, 
right? It's, you think about sushi, it's the original food porn. It You start eating with your eyes. It's very visual. It's very mm. pretty. It's almost like art. And then once you put it in your mouth, you taste freshness through texture. Yeah. You can't smell like if it's rancid, you could smell it from three feet away. But the thing about sushi is you can really tell first and foremost visually how fresh yeah. su- uh, sushi grade sushi is. But the texture is the other thing. Not only because whether or not it's fresh, because you actually don't want it fresh. But what uh, Otto does is he dry ages a lot of his fish. Right. So that the enzymes in the umami get to break down in the fish a little bit. Because if you know you pull a salmon out of the ocean and two hours later you cut up and give it to someone in sashimi, the texture isn't going to be right because there's a certain amount of rigor mortis and stiffness and mm-hmm. it's too fresh. You have to let it rest. You have to let it that, decompose. Yeah. Just like a dry-aged steak. Right. Dry ages for 30, 60, or 90 days. That that blew my mind. Is yeah. is like the moment it drops on your plate is yeah. the perfect time. It's the optimum time. That chef the has rice, given the, it to you. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's the other thing. People don't realize the subtleties of really amazing impressive sushi is yeah. that his the he he makes balls of rice and his cuts of fish are teardrops they're not rectangle no, pieces yeah. like bk and a lot of other people do yeah it's very traditionally japanese it's also very traditionally masa like i've eaten at masa i've eaten okay. masa in japan like it's very japanese very okay. traditional it's petite almost it's bite size like a lot of times sushi the rice is rectangular and then the fish is cut yeah. in a rectangle. So you almost have With, to eat it in two bites. If you okay. eat it in one bite like you're supposed to, it's a mouthful. But this one, it gives you the room and the availability to feel the texture and also gives you that, like a wine, it gives you that space to really, for lack of a better word, bouquet right. uh, of the flavor of right. whether, he, you know, whether he's topping it with soy or he puts caviar or... You know, whatever he puts on, you know, pickled dashi or whatever. Uni, yeah, you really get yeah. a chance to favor when you when you put a large piece of sushi oh in your mouth, God. which is actually a traditional. Is it really? Traditional sushi is actually I didn't know huge. that. Yeah. yeah. What's the um, uh, yuzu? It was like, like I looked like I had chipmunk cheeks. Yeah. It was uncomfortable. I think that's rice, too. They put a lot oh, of rice man. with their... Like Going nuts with the and sauce. I, hey, you, Everyone has their own style. Yeah, I don't yeah, put yeah. down any yeah, yeah. restaurant. It's It's... It's not um, a negative. How would you, not not um, no negativity to this? Yeah. Obviously, they're both great, but like, how do you compare Masa to Kyoto? How would you... I? I think it's better, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I went with my best friend Paul. I didn't go with Paul. With one, I went when I was on the. Uh, when I was at Lettuce, we went and did uh, eighteen omakases in New York, and we did twenty four in L.A. Wow. Uh, and when I was in New York, I was doing two omakases a day. When I was in LA, I was doing two or three. Is this three research? Day. This was research before uh, we opened Naoki together. Oh, Naoki. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, I went to Masa, and, you know, although uh, Rich Melman picked up the bill and it was on him for research and development, right. I saw the bill. And so you, you think about this. It's like you. the next day I had a hangover, but it was like, uh, it was wallet hangover like i thought wow like that meal was over a thousand dollars do i get the same quality of fish and the same quality technique and like maybe even better rice than masa what you're paying for is the masa brand don't get me wrong his sushi in new york is top three level right right? but you're in the time warner building so i imagine rent's got to be about sixty thousand dollars in that space i don't kill it with that (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> in Logan. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like if you could have the same food that you have at Spiaggia, but at a place in Logan Square and fifteen hundred square feet, and there's a couple places like that that do homemade pasta yeah. from hand. Same caviar, right? Same truffles, right. same wine, right? Yeah. But one third the price. So, if I had to weigh things out, I think it's even. I think Kiwitin's better than Masa, mm. and Masa's not even at Masa anymore. So, oh, I didn't know that. He's in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. Went back to okay. Yeah. He's got um, a restaurant. He's got a sushi bar in Japan. Did you ever, um, I didn't ask out of this, but did you ever like pull Otto aside and was like, hey, you know, you come off as arrogant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, on one, on one hand, I didn't have to because I told him to his face, I didn't want to like you. I don't even think I described that. When I shook his hand, I said, I didn't want to like you. I didn't want to like your sushi, but this is the best sushi in Chicago. And he said, yeah. He goes, you know, uh, I'm actually really quiet and kind of shy and introverted uh, when I'm in front of people. And when I was, and that's him. Like even at the, even at the, the Jean Bonchet Awards, mm-hmm. like he gave a speech and a lot of people were looking at each other like this, like, and I, I, I know him, so I understood, right, uh, his narrative. Yeah. But like I said, he's gravely misunderstood because he's Kurt. Because he's like, uh, in Pulp Fiction, he's the wolf. He's the cleaner. Okay. Know? Okay. If I'm Kurt, it's because I'm professional and I'm just, you know, he's he's all... To the point, yeah. yeah. He's all result. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to... Who, who cares what it takes to get there? Who's to blame? How we do it? He's like, I just want to be the best. And you have to look at that because really that takes a lot of balls. Hmm. You know, to not sugarcoat things, yeah. to not filter things, to not worry about what other people are going to say or think and give no fucks and just say, I want to be the best at this. Yeah, I want to be the best sushi restaurant in Chicago. I want to be the best omakase. I want to provide an experience and I want to provide... If you, what most people also don't realize and he hasn't put out on social media is that, well, he, I think he does it through video, but every night there's two, three fish that nobody, there's nobody in Chicago has. <laughs> not... Mako, not Yume, not Mirai, not Kaizen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and don't get me wrong. It, does that make him better than any of us? But then people who know see the passion. Like he's literally trying to source fish that nobody else has, or can get, or will get, or does carry yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. Not only that, it's like even like the vinegar. <laughs> And just yeah. like his drink menu, it's just like what you know, top all top tier stuff. Yeah, you know what him and Justin, uh, who's the Sam over right, there, are doing right, right. there is you know I love that it's the best kept secret because it gives him lots of room to be discovered and mm-hmm. grow, and uh, for him to kind of open up to the rest of the Chicago yeah food scene that hasn't um, you know because don't get me wrong he can only do eight people at a time so right. he's doing sixteen people a night. Right. right, five nights a week. Right, so he's going to get there. He's only been here for a little over a year. He's already gotten a Jean Bashi Award for yeah, best he, new restaurant for Michelin. You know, will he get a James Baird? Will he get a Michelin? I hope so. Yeah, I hope he. I don't know if he really cares about that. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But if he gets it, I think it'll be deserved. He really he expressed that he really cared about loyalty. People that like repeat re- returning customers. You know, That's guests. I think that's the biggest award you can get. Yeah. For me, the only thing I've cared about is that people 
would come to a restaurant because I was there. They wanted to see me. They didn't really even care if it was a restaurant group from LA or let us entertain you or yeah. they just wanted to come see me. Do do you find restaurants changing after they've been discovered or they win certain awards or Yeah, absolutely. Okay. They they change like some change most of them change for the better because then they even become more humble. Hmm. You know? Uh the ones that start believing their own press. And then, oh, well, let's not fix it if it's not broke. Like, we got this award, so let's write. Like, but that's human nature. A lot of people do that. They sit on their own accolades or they're right. the ones that are really seasoned, experienced, don't ever, they're, you so, know, you look at, a, here's the craziest thing. Like, what I've learned in the last four months at the timeout market, Yeah. Um, you know, I'm across from, the stall directly across from me is Bill Kim. I love that guy and look up to him. He's what the only preeminent Korean chef that came from Trotters and opened his own restaurants and his own brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next to him is Brian Enyart, um from Dose Urban. He's one of my best buds. Huh. Tai Dang. Yeah. I mean, I love Tai Dang. He's, yeah. I'm at the Thai mark, uh, out market because of Tai Dang. And um, I followed his footsteps there because he believed in it so much. And oh, he actually, I didn't know that. Yeah. He actually had a big role in me being there. Um, do you, Tai Dang do, do you is know, amazing. Did you see his post today? The, like he and Danielle are at the the shop in Pilsen, repurposing and packaging leftover food and then redistributing it to the community. Yeah, and and people in the hospitality industry yeah. that could use the food. I don't think there's two greater human beings that deserve more amazing success and good karma. Yeah, and. A wonderful, wonderful uh, abundance than Ty Dang and his wife, Danielle. You know, they, they obviously um, deserve a lot of things because of the obvious reason, uh, you know, of what happened to them mm-hmm. at Ambea and that horrible human being that they were partners with. But on another note, they're just, aside from all that, do you know what it takes on a daily, I do, because I, you know, we've all had bad partners. Almost everybody I know has had a bad partner in this business. You know, they had the worst situation happen to them. It affected their family. It affected their lives to the core. For them to get up every day now, and even though they have a successful restaurant, to still have to deal uh, with, you know, it's still a piece going of garbage on. Yeah. human being yeah. and still put on a happy face and be positive. And like I said, like everybody's struggle is internal. Every day you're just battling your own self, your own limitations, your own fears, your own limits. And they push the limit every day on mm-hmm. how do I become a better human being today? Mm-hmm. How do I do more for my employees? How do I do more for my guests? How do I do more for my wife and my partner? How do I do more for my friends and peers? Like right. he is constantly like this little Tasmanian <laughs> chef devil yeah. that is always spinning. Like how do I do more for other people? Right. right. How do I still, how do I, I, for me, and I'm the most positive person in the world, I get inspired from him, everybody I get inspiration from. First and foremost is the, is the industry around me. You know, my best friend Curtis uh, inspires me. Ty Dang and his wife inspire me to no end. Um, all all my friends that have to deal with, you know, all the struggles and everything that they're dealing with on a daily basis basis of running a small business and a small restaurant brand, they inspire me because at one point I told you last time I was here I gave up. For a year and a half, I took a knee and said, I don't know what to do. You know, uh, 
this business becomes harder and harder every year. Mm -hmm. It becomes more and more expensive. It becomes more and more competitive. The costs keep going up. Real estate keeps going up. Rent keeps going up. And then the quality labor pool diminishes every year. So, uh, you know, you need to sometimes take a step back, take a deep breath, and then reapproach things. And they do that on a daily basis. All my friends do. And so I guess because I'm a little bit jaded and a little bit older, I'm really... I really look to my industry uh, professional peers and best friends for inspiration. They keep me uh, sane. They yeah. keep me inspired. They keep me motivated more than anything. Yeah. Like I see what they do on a daily basis and the, the balls they have to juggle and the hurdles they have to get over. And now look what's happened. Now all restaurants are closed. So now we're all sitting in the same boat. Yeah. You know, we're all dressed up. We have nowhere to go. We have no other options. So what are they doing? They're giving away a loss. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a loss already, right? They bought all this product and then we're told the next day, you know, they bought all the inventory for the next week and then we're all told, hey, we're going to close on Monday. So what did they do? They could have made that family meal for the next three, four days, mm -hmm. right? And saved money on their own bottom line and their own food costs mm -hmm. for to provide meals for their own. But they said, no, it's... Let's give it out to the community. Let's give it out yeah. to the homeless. Like they're an, they're an amazing they're an amazing model. Yeah, yeah. Of what to be uh, as a good human. Mm. I feel warm and fuzzy. This has definitely been warm and fuzzy. Um, we have a couple of tequilas. We're going to be really warm and fuzzy. <laughs> um, who who? introduced you to uh fortaleza here's the funniest thing i um used to be a scotch drinker yeah. i drank nothing but copious amounts of scotch so much so that i have 30 bottles in my bar i every christmas all the guys at the dojo still give me johnny walker black because i would drink johnny walker black and soda and smoke a cigarette like i was fucking korean dean martin <laughs> and i was doing two shows a night in vegas <laughs> i would always have a black label and soda and i could drink right because you're coasting yeah leaders of it right 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 and then uh it was funny it was when i opened uh i had opened a place called urban union and i've only wanted to have one craft spirit mm. in each category so i only want to have one tequila oh yeah, yeah, yeah one scotch when we opened right like and we were very small and it was you know um it was everything cooked over a wood-burning uh brick oven yeah and uh, it was Spanish. My three favorite foods it was Italian, Spanish, and uh, French food. Right, wow. but real provincial, real yeah. like whatever a grandmother is cooking okay. in Spain, Italy, or France. Wow. And so we started out. You know, I didn't want to have extravagant cocktails, and you know, uh, I just wanted to have like the cl five classics, and then I wanted like if you wanted a tequila, it would just and the rep brought by a bunch of stuff and all the reps did and out of everything I tasted I didn't even really care for tequila you know like most people I had a very bad experience in okay. Cancun <laughs> on, on Molly with my friend Jeff Hemmings and Steve Majar and Jeff Buscemi and we drank too much tequila and wound up you know uh, passing out on the beach in a pool of our own dried vomit the next day and so I stayed away from uh, tequila and I wasn't a drinker and yeah. when I started drinking I drank scotch and then so out of all the tequilas I had tasted there was Ocho there was all this tequila I liked the I liked how clean and smooth there was two there was uh, Mastro Doble and 
um, Fortaleza, and I loved Blanco because it tastes like agave, mm, you know, pure, yeah, yeah. It, and it tasted really clean. So that was the only. I never drank it, but I always recommend it because I believed in it. And then when I opened Juno, I had it on the shelf. Same thing. I only carried two tequilas, and that was one of them. I think the other one was Casa Azul because mm. I like that, and because uh, I tasted it out. And then um, uh, this guy Howard came in. He's like, "Oh, you carry Fortaleza? I love that stuff." I'm like, and that kind of piqued my interest. And then one of my best friends, who's a you know a very well known chef, him and I were gonna go to a UFC fight uh, to watch it at a, at a at a friend's bar. And he's like, "Let's pregame here." And he's like, "You have Fortaleza? I love Fortaleza." And they had carried Fortaleza at the restaurant he wow. was at before he opened his own restaurant. And so. I was like, I'm gonna, we'll drink it, and we wound up drinking like almost two bottles because that's how, like, clean over ice. It was just so clean. And then we went to uh, my our friend's bar to watch the UFC fight, and we ordered uh, some more. And by the end of the night, I'm like, did we just drink all that? And I wasn't drunk. Huh? I was like, feeling no pain. I was happy. It was like happy juice. It was like feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liquor. And then uh, that's all she wrote. Wow! Uh, now I, it's all I drink. I'll keep an eye out. I learned a lot about it being, you know, tr- trying to be health minded aside right. from the cheeseburgers. Right. Uh, it's easiest to metabolize out of all the spirits. It's probiotic. Um, I didn't hear that one. I've never heard that one. Probiotic. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's. I spew out these <laughs> statistics like from uh, Clueless. Like, uh, yeah, you burn calories drinking it. <laughs> Like, it, <laughs> and it, you know, it, it puts protein into the muscles, and it's like a, it's a protein drink. I, I really like that and protein it's probio- shake video. Probiotic, and it's uh, you know, you burn calories and metabol. It's the easiest to metabolize. That's awesome. Yeah, and you know, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, I, I'm a big advocate, and I promote it because I believe in it and I love it. Yeah, and Fortaleza takes care of me sponsor this video Fortaleza <laughs> drink Fortaleza um that's is there anything else you wanted to add or this was like I consider this like a prelude to your book yeah so that's really like <clears throat> you know you look back in your life and you know I, I've had a really amazing interesting life because the majority of the time people Probably like, yeah, he's full of shit. Well, they only know one sliver. Yeah. And they only see one side of me. And, you know, here's the other thing. Like, the bane of my existence has been that, and I'm not saying this from, um, I'm not aggrandizing myself. I'm not trying to be conceited or self-centered or vain in any way, by no means. But all the problems I've had in my life, um, professionally or socially, have been uh, people uh, some people, it's just, it's like one out of 50, mm. just do not like me. They never met me. They don't like me. They do not like me because they know everybody likes me. Like, oh, oh, we know that guy. They're lost. That's because I'm old because I went to a huge high school. I'm born and raised in Chicago. Um, I've done a, I've done a, I've always tried to do amazing things for the people that helped me get to where I wanted because I always knew that whatever situation I'm in at work, whether it was at the Merck, or in any of the restaurants I opened as a consultant or as a manager or that I owned, you know, your friends brag for you, mm. right? I, I try to be humble. I really do, especially the last few years of you my are. life. Yeah. I try to be very, very humble and gracious. 
I, although I love talking, I love talking about my life and what I believe in and yeah. things I feel very strongly about. You know, I'm a very private person. I, yeah. What I put out on social media is the things, my passion is working out, being motivational, being positive, mm -hmm. uh, the restaurant business, whatever I'm, whatever I'm doing. And so with that being said, I've come to realize not only my own mortality, but my parents, you know, especially everything that's been going on recently. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the most amazing things that my, my, my mother's obviously, you know, I'm a mama's boy. Uh -huh. uh, my mother has been uh, the first teacher I ever had. She's never lied to me, not even one white lie. Mm. And f since I was a little child, she's always told me, I, I will be the only person that never lies to you. Um, you know, my stepfather is the most amazing man because he adopted me. He's not my real biological father. Um, my mom wouldn't marry him uh, because he wanted to have, she's like, you're going to want to have children of your own. Mm. And if I do that, I marry you and give you children, you're going to treat my son differently. And he's like, I will never ask you to have a kid. I will make Jason my son. And he did. And he lives up to his word. Wow. He loved my mom and me better than any father, uh, biological father ever could. And my father, I say this all the time, my father only did one thing uh, my entire life, and he did it every day. He believed in me. Every day he was like, you know, you can do this. If there's anybody who can do it, it's you. He always just always believed in me. Good, bad, or ugly, the stupidest idea to the best idea to the craziest idea to the most lofty that's that's far-fetched awesome. idea Jason is your is your mom still asking to be a chiropractor here's what my mom wants <laughs> you know um if i could uh marry a korean singer and you know quickly have as many grandchildren with her as i could and somehow wear a white coat right yeah <laughs> Or be an engineer. Or, right, right. Yeah, she'd be pretty happy. <laughs> you know, because, you know, I, I know for a fact, not because my mom jammed it down my throat, but her, she had three dreams for me, as any mother does when they give birth to their child. The, the, the only three things she hoped for me when she came to this country and gave birth to me was that uh, she would see me get married, she would see me graduate college, uh, and she would see me be a father. And, uh, you know, uh -oh. none of those came into fruition. Uh -oh. for I got kicked out of college and went to prison. Uh, I um, got divorced and uh, have seven godchildren, which is worse than having no children. Oh, man. Um, from, from my mom. Right, least. exactly. She's exactly. like, you love all these children like they're your own and, you know, you should have your own. And, you know, I think having children is a gift. I think it's a gift from the universe. I don't think it's bad or negative that I don't have any children. It's just that I was so concerned and consumed. You know what I was worried? I was more worried about uh, whether or not I would be a good father. It kind of prevented me from being a father. And now at this juncture proved, in life, yeah, I know that how you could amazing be. Yeah. of a father I would be. And that's okay because, you know, Having children isn't for everyone, and it's never too late. Hey, Charlie Chaplin had kids when he was 83, so... Oh, my God. You know, um, I won't be able to pick them up. That's an old, that's an old joke. But, uh, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I live a really blessed life and whatever dreams and hopes that my parents have for me is another reason why, um, if there's one thing I want to, you know, every person wants to leave something behind. A lot of time it's children. You don't have to write a book. You don't have to do amazing things and win awards. And, you know, I've won lots of great awards that I'm really, really proud of, you know, several. I'm, I've achieved what I set out to achieve in my life and make people happy and, and, you know, more importantly, make myself happy. And that paradigm changed immensely mm. and poignantly, you know, when I got through my battle with cancer and it changed me. I, things that I would worry about, I'd never worry about anymore. Huh. The little things in life, I never swelt the little things, but then that's the irony. And that's what's really fucked up is that the most important things in life are really the smallest things in life. Yeah. But then the worst things that you shouldn't worry about are also the small things in life. So you have to distinguish what those small things are, right? And it, it it's hard. It's, you know, don't get me wrong. I've, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm no angel by any means. I've made a lot of mistakes, but none that I regret. Yeah. You know, you never regret the things you do. You only regret the things you didn't do. And there's only... You know, I think that's maybe one of the only regrets I'll have is that I didn't um, yeah. have a child. Yeah. But who's to say, uh, you know, at this age I can't adopt or meet someone that has a child that I'm going to love as much as my father right. loved right. me exactly. and I wasn't right. his yeah. biological child. So, you know, I think history rhymes. It doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but maybe history will rhyme. I like that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's what I believe in. Huh. Uh, my friend Esther... Oh, she said that? Yeah. Oh, Mr. Garcia. Okay, yeah. cool. Cool, cool. Well, you want to wrap this episode? Yeah, I think, you know, I, here's the thing. That's the thing about life and our relationship and what you do for a living and what I do for a living. We could do this every day. <laughs> I I could pull so many crazy things out of my ass that you wouldn't even it's like. It's definitely believe. worthy uh, of a book. Dating Anna Nicole Smith. Uh Meeting the people that I've met that people wouldn't believe. You know, the dinner I went to the other night with the people I was sitting at the table, if I told you who they were, you wouldn't believe me because it was a Hollywood actor and a guy yeah. who's, you know, a major stadium is named after. And, yeah. you know, huh. guy who runs a major uh, financial institution. I have lived such a robust, full, abundant, amazing life and all the things that have happened to me. Like, if, if, if we just did an episode and I named the 12 top things in my life that happened to me and the people that were involved in it, 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 it's, it would be a movie. It would be yeah. a script for a movie. And so that's why I guess, you know, wrapping this up, this is all really, I wanted uh, you to learn more about the other side of just restaurants. Yeah, everybody kind of knows me. Right. As the I, I guess the general public in general just knows me. Oh, that's the guy that has been in the restaurant business forever. Okay. Or that's the guy that is a martial arts guy. Um, there's so many things uh, other than that. You know, the story behind my parents and my mom and um, everything I did uh, before I got to this point mm -hmm. is exactly what I want to try to write about. Because like I said, I was very inspired from by one of my best friends. He's got a document. Uh, he's got like a documentary and a book coming out about him. And not that I wanted to follow, jump on the bandwagon and try to be... Uh, put myself in a spotlight. Yeah. That's not why I'm doing it. Right. But I think at my age 
for my point in my career, what I've done, I think it would be something that everybody would really enjoy because it's a human story and it's about a lot of things. It's about, I've been through uh, fires and disease and all kinds of shit in my life. And do I want to be an example and have uh, some sort of record of for other people who are gone through the same thing that I've gone through and they can read it and take what they need from it and, you know, put themselves in a better or more positive place because of it, then that's what it's really all about. It's not about, um, you know, putting the focus on myself and, and yeah. putting me on in a, in a spotlight in a favorable light. Cause a lot of it's unfavorable actually, no. but there's a lot of lessons from it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's fighting. Yeah. You, you either <laughs> you either win or you learn a really really amazing lesson about how that's to win the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, buddy, for coming on again. I can't thank you enough for um, having me. Well, you could have been on any other podcast. I like your podcast. Thank, thank you, but I'm I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored to be here, and I, I appreciate we got the uh, opportunity to do this again. And you know, it's uh, it's talking about everything. And not really one thing, which is what I like. Mm-hmm. And last time was more focused on the restaurant and hospitality business and, you know, scratching the surface of me and, you know, my background. But, you know, I wanted to come back and just kind of talk friend to friend. I love learning. I love learning Same and hearing here. about it. That's what it's all about. Okay. So it's all about. So and the, thanks for having as, me. As this podcast progresses, you know, I, I try to realize uh, or remember that no one is just their title or their work you no. know we're all we're all so much more than that i think we're the sum total of our experiences exactly and, I, and this podcast started as like a career like a passion driven podcast but I, I i thoroughly enjoy uncovering what makes that guest the, that guest in addition to their passion and in addition to their job title like sure there's so much more well and it. i want to nominate a few people for you oh, to, yeah. Inter- yeah, yeah. to to you know, speak with and sit down with because a lot of them I think have uh, equally, if not even grander stories uh, than my story. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has one. Right. I have a lot. Uh, the people like, you know, I think it's really imperative that we get Phil Foss on here so that he can um, get his message out because that's really important. And right now, I don't think that message could be more important while the whole industry is sitting at home quarantined with no no source of income, mm-hmm. uh, probably in sitting in their own feelings, uh, and thinking about a lot of shit, like the choices they made in their business, because we're all questioning that to be honest with you. Like, you know, it's so funny because when I heard they're going to close all the restaurants right. and we were told the day before that to close, that they're going to close the food hall. I was like, this is so typical of the restaurant business. Like just when you think that, that Murphy's law. Think, yeah. Like we're thriving, yeah. we're kicking ass, yeah. we're taking names. Everything's like the, one day you're basking in the sun and the sails are full of wind. <laughs> and then 12 hours later, you're bashed against the rocks, shattered against the rocks and no hope of what, three, five, six weeks. weeks yeah. None of us are going to have a source of income. Uh, okay, what if we do try to get uh, unemployment? What if we try to do apply for whatever uh, stimulus or relief fund? That's all going to be retro. In other words, yeah, they're- What do we do trying, now? What yeah. do we do now? How do I yeah. get money in my, like I'm supposed to get a check next week. Where's that going to come from? 
Yeah. Because I just budgeted everything for the restaurant, for everything. So, <clears throat> you know, it's, you know, uh, if there's anything that holds true uh, for the business that we're in, you know, tough times don't last. Absolutely. Tough people do. Mm. Our restaurant hospitality professionals tough. They're the toughest mm. in in the in the world, if you ask me. Um, so I think right now is a time when I think a lot of people, what's going to happen? A lot of people are going to get pregnant. A lot of people are going <laughs> to drink more. A lot of people are going to get more depressed. Uh, I think crime might go up. You know, because what happens in a time like this is what everybody's trying to prevent when the real prevention with this is panic. I think what's going to happen in three to five weeks is people that are really insolvent and at the bottom of the poverty pool. I Desperation. Think what happens when you don't have anything, it, you, you, you don't give a fuck. You have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. So that's like, okay, well, you know, it's yeah. time to. Well, hopefully, I mean, I, I see a lot of outpouring of support from each other as well, you know, so hopefully everyone holds each other close during this. Well, I know that's going to, you know, it's already happening in the restaurant industry. Yeah. I think um, there's going to be a lot of, hey, I see this as prohibition. For me, Mm -hmm. I I think it's like I'm going in the other direction. I don't want to hide in fear and wait for this thing to hold, like to blow over and to wait and to be quarantined and like, and I'm not being an anarchist. I'm not being defiant. What I'm being is I just don't want to sit at home and not do anything. Yeah. So, you know, I see it as like prohibition. I see it as like, yeah, they can't stop you right now. But you understand? You mean the whole concept is so you might be a carrier right now? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean the fact that I work in a hospital, I might be yeah, a, probably a carrier. I don't doubt that anymore. We're asymptomatic. I mean, we talked about this earlier, and I've right, talked about right, it so many right. times. And I was like, I don't doubt. Like, I never get sick. So, it, but it's who you come in contact with. Yeah, whether it's your parents, I've come or in contact other with immunocompromised five thousand people a day at the food hall. Right. 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 So, do I think I'm a carrier? Absolutely. But am I going to sit here and, uh, you know, not live your life? Is it for the better good in the public that I'm not exposing myself to other people? Absolutely. I, absolutely. I do the elbow bump. Mm. I try not to get within too close to a perimeter of everyone. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is like there's things you can do. Then, you know, people are, people are really diving into the whole quarantine. Oh, like, uh, yeah. Like, let's just just get toilet paper and tequila, whatever it is you want to fucking stockpile up on, and then just stay at home and do nothing. No, Like, wait for this. Like, it was, uh, you know, like biblical in the Ten Commandments when you just stay at home, uh, especially Mm. if you had the lamb's love painted over your door, and you just wait for death to pass over your door and, and skip you. Like, to me, all the people that can't fight, won't fight and are stockpiling everything. Guess what? All that shit is mine now. <laughs> you just bought all you stockpiled all that for me because I'm not going to just sit here and um, you know come on over. I have toilet paper. <laughs> That's stupid. It's <laughs> so stupid. So I'll, I guess what I'm saying is I I don't want to be uh, I don't want to spew rhetoric. I don't want to, I, I don't have a plan. I don't know what to do, but I know we have to do something. You know, mm-hmm. I know we all collectively as a group, as Chicagoans, as a civilized city, we have to do something because if we rely on uh, the governor or the mayor or the government to come up with a plan and tell us what we should do, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer because I don't want to just sit at home and, 
you know, confine myself so that nobody else gets it and not expose myself so that nobody else uh, gives it to me and uh, to wait to see what the government and all the research and, you know, uh, tells me that yeah. we should be doing because I, what I, are, what are operators doing for their team though? So that's, uh, that's interesting because, you know, you, the plan you know? was when we heard the news the day before they announced that they're going to close because we, we were actually told to close the day before mm. the city announced that they're closing all the restaurants. I was like, okay, well, we'll transplant all these employees from the food hall. Like I'm lucky. Uh, I'm the labor at yeah. my yeah. food stall. My partner, um, uh, my partner Christine does all the production with a baking assistant. So we have two employees. We have a baking assistant, oh, and we yeah. have uh, one person that works the stall, so they can have two nights off. And my other business partner, the admin investor business partner, who's a you know a very uh, integral uh, part of our partnership, he works two three days, so I can get oh, nice. uh, some time off now at the at the point where we're at before this thing closed, which is finally the promised land. Um, was to transplant people there. So I think now the only thing we can do is that's what everybody's spinning their wheels. It's like, A, we need to activate the city and the city government, the governor of Illinois and the mayor of this city to come up with some sort of package, some sort of compensation, some sort of right. emergency pay so that people can, uh, you know, a tax exemption, whatever they do to make these people's lives easier. Because whether nobody, nobody knows this, but this is a real statistic. The number one employer in the whole United States is the government. The number two employer is the restaurant industry. Okay. You go okay. to any town, any city. That's insane. Any part of any country, uh, of any state in this country, the, the second largest employer in that state is the restaurant business. Okay. Okay. Number one is the government. Yeah. So, you know, army, military, post office, whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> everyone's spinning their world. What can right. we do? Yeah. I think what we can do is buy a lot of gift certificates. Okay. Encourage people that that work at restaurants, own restaurants, to put on their social media, to put on their okay. website, to put on their um, digital ecosystem that you have to buy gift certificates, uh, either over the phone, uh, through online, buy it for the restaurant so there's income coming in. And then when this whole thing blows over, use that gift certificate to take mm. your wife or your girlfriend or your best friend out and use it because we need an influx of cash. That's number one. Number two, I think, you know, Everything's moved to delivery, so hopefully a lot of the essential employees uh, that were at the food hall and our servers or whatnot, a lot of people are just doing delivery. Mm. So now I know Grubhub and a lot of other secondary mm. delivery systems are waiving a lot of fees and whatnot and not taking any profit and not uh, capitalizing or uh, you know being opportunistic oh. right now at a, at a low time. And you know, uh, Mark Malnati, I think that's one of the most amazing things today. He announced that he's hiring. Uh, as many delivery drivers because his business is going to go. Is up he now. Grubhub? Who is he? No, he owns Malnati's, Luminati's. Oh, Luminati's. Oh, okay, okay. So now he's offering. He posted it everywhere on their website, he's on their, their social media, and Instagram. Like, come be a driver for Luminati's. We have a shortage. We can take all the extra uh, people that are now out of jobs, and you'll get cash tips at the end of the night every night. Mm. So I think that's amazing. So I think a lot of bigger corporations, like I, I would hope that Let Us Entertain You steps up to the place because they can certainly. Take the hit for the next three, four weeks. They, think about this. How many employees does Let Us Entertain you have, do you think? It's ten, close to 100,000. Oh, I was going to say tens of thousands. 100, they own 140 restaurants. Okay, Let's just say there's 10. Yeah, let's just <laughs> say there's 50 employees at each restaurant. There's, it's a lot. Okay. So, you know, all these restaurants closing, all the ones that can absorb, and it means not making a profit 
and just going uh, bare minimum and covering their food costs, covering their labor costs. I, I would hope that they would step up to the plate. I would hope that um, a lot of other um, big companies and corporations that are making money uh, and and not seeing a change in their revenue would step up to the plate yeah. and say, hey, listen, this is what we're going to donate to a fund that needs to be set up to somehow be delegated right. to restaurant employees because it's 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 a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I'm not the smartest guy in, in any room by any means. But I know that, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't want to do nothing. I hear you. But you're, you're, are you trying to skip town as well? Like, are you, does it? Well, that was a plan, but the way things are going and what I've seen, I think from San Francisco and New Jersey now, like my plan was to jump in a car and drive to see my family in North Carolina now that I have all this time off. Uh, stop in Louisiana and Atlanta to see chef friends and uh, oh. senseis that have schools, oh, okay, uh, okay. Shidokan schools in uh, Atlanta. So it'd still be a productive and trip. Then go to, and then go to uh, Florida and stay with one of my close friends and hang out with him and his wife. And just, if I'm going to oh. do nothing, I'd rather sit in the sun drinking tequila. But now uh, there's talk about a curfew. There's talk about an interstate uh, travel ban. Oh, um you know, they're trying to – literally, I think the president said today, like, anything where there's more than 10 people, uh, we want to close down. So that that's martial law, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I do, do I think that's – I'm not being a naysayer or paranoid or a conspiracy theorist, but I think if, if what the government's doing now, if it – the next progression, the next steps are curfew and, like, martial law and, like, don't be out after 5 o'clock and – I we don't want people traveling from Chicago to Florida. Yeah, yeah. Interesting times, but like you said earlier, I think we'll definitely come out brighter on top. I think it, this is going to force us to be creative and uh, more cohesive as a community. And then after, I think it blows over. You know, you know there's a there's a Ernest Hemingway quote, and there's a lot of quotes very similar to that. That you know, the world is a harsh place that breaks you, but always become stronger in the places that you were broken so i think you know this is going to shed new light for all of us that are in the trenches like we've like people in the restaurant business uh, and chefs and people in the kitchen in particular are always called trenchermen there are people in the trenches all the time right mm -hmm. like you're always in a foxhole mm -hmm. fighting and it's who you're in the foxhole with it's your sous chef it's your line cooks and it's your like your pastry chef, like you're always in that foxhole, whether there's a war going on or not, you're just always in a foxhole. And now that we're all not in a foxhole, we have no foxhole, right? They close the foxholes, no foxholes. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to magnify people just like what I went through. It magnified my life, my paradigm, my perception and my When this is your identity, right. I think after this, when we all go back into that foxhole, we're going to treat each other differently. Mm. We're going to be a stronger, even stronger unit than before. I think there's going to be more synergy between front of the house and back of the house. Cool. I think there's going to be a greater respect and humility. Like, if anything, if at all else, like when you see the news and you see uh, people that have dealing with feast and famine or famine and uh, countries that are exiled, this, people are exiled. Their, yeah. You you see uh, President Trump passing out toilet paper to people in Puerto Rico and what they're now, you know, like, 
wow, I go to, went to the grocery store today and there was everything that college kids eat. There was not, not the ramen, there was no the ramen, cheese, there was yeah. no bread, there was no mac and cheese. Right, there was right. like, even at, I went to two different Marianos in a Whole Foods and like, it, it's crazy. Like the mentality. Yeah right now right and so it makes you appreciate everything like wow those people uh that were displaced because of war or because of famine or because of hurricane like that's real misery they yeah, don't have a that home. was there every day they like we have the we have the luxury of saying okay we're going to stay at home and watch netflix oh and and eat frozen food and canned food you know how many people in the world don't have that it's i think it'll if anything this will hopefully unify everybody not only in the restaurant community, but as a civilization, and it's definitely as a city that, you know, um, maybe something amazing and great is going to come out of this. Like I said, yeah. chaos always precedes amazing change. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I'm, I'm ready to wrap this. Absolutely. Yeah. What time is it? I, uh, 10. So thank you guys so for, for staying tuned. Uh, three hours. That's not good. I'm sorry. That no, you're good. Long, buddy. This is the second three hour episode. Holy shit. I had another three hour, yeah. I, oh no, two. Uh, this is the third three hour episode. But thank you guys for uh, staying tuned. You know where to find Jason at I Fight Dirty at Instagram. Um, when can we expect a book? If if the you know if we were to put it so out in the universe. What, what I'm going to try to do right now is like you know I want to. I'm going to spend the next three to five weeks focusing on the infrastructure of my business with my partners. Sure, sure. We're going to you know ramp up. We're going over. Uh, things we need to change, things that were strong, things that were weak, what we can do uh, better when we go back to the, uh, the timeout market um, and the other aspects that are involved with our business that are you know supplemental to that. But I'm also going to take the time to get an outline done and like try to stay creative and try to stay productive. And again, the whole impetus is motivation and be inspirational. And so I'm going to base everything I'm writing about on that and just trying to create something that's going to be hugely and immensely inspirational and motivational for people to draw from. Yep. Okay. Cool. All right, guys. Um, stay curious. Aloha. I'll see you in the next episode.